You're listening to episode 35 of the Secret Origins podcast, featuring the stories of Booster Gold, the Martian Manhunter, and Maxwell Lord. the Secret Origins Podcast, a review show dedicated to the Secret Origins comics published by DC in the 1980s. I'm your host, Ryan Daly, and this is the final installment of the Secret Origins of the Justice League International trifecta thing. Three issues, nine stories. The final leg begins now with the story of Booster Gold. You may have heard my first guest on Rob Kelly's Film and Water podcast, where he's appeared on episodes covering Batman and the Golden Voyage of Sinbad. Or you may have seen him on Facebook, where he posts the most intense, emotive profile pictures of any man I've ever seen. Secret admirers, please welcome Mr. Andy Kapelish. How are you doing, Andy? I'm doing fantastic, Ryan. How are you, man? <laughs> I'm good, I'm good. Uh, simple question, have you ever listened to the podcast before? Yeah, I, I just got done listening to the uh, All-Star Squadron uh, slash JSA episode, so the first half at least. So, <laughs> well, Trust me, I, Most. that wasn't me calling into question your credentials, and that certainly wasn't me fishing for compliments. <laughs> All it was was me testing a new segue into my canned explanation for what Secret Origins is. And since you have heard the show, you know that Secret Origins was an anthology series published by DC Comics with each issue telling the origin of at least one hero or villain from the DC universe. The series ran for 50 issues between January of 1986 and June of 1990, and also included three annuals and one special. All told, between the 54 comics with the Secret Origins banner, something like 120 stories were chronicled in this series. And I think we'll have covered about 80 stories at the time that this episode is done. Not 80 different characters, not even 80 origins per se, but 80 stories. Now, as I mentioned earlier, we're starting with Booster Gold. Andy, why did you want this character? Well, Booster Gold's one of my favorite all-time DC Comics characters, and it's a character that I have a deep personal uh, connection with. I appreciate a lot of different aspects of the character, and, you know, being, uh, again, someone who uh, has very emotive uh, Facebook profile pictures and a very uh, large online presence, I am a little bit of my own hype man, and I can really appreciate that in a hero. Also, uh, the fact that there, later on in his mythology, uh, he sort of really summed up my feelings during my 20s of, you know, feeling like uh, I was very um, important, but not getting the credit that I deserved. Uh, now that I'm a little older, I realize that you actually have 
have to do things to get credit for things. But uh, yeah, I, I love Booster Gold, uh, and I really uh, can identify with the character. And also, as a kid, uh, he was one of the characters that I absolutely adored. I would pick heroes based on what they look like, and then, you know, kind of went from there as far as, like, reading them or, uh, you know, asking for comics for my parents or uh, you know, grandparents or aunts and uncles who collected comics. Uh, so Booster Gold was always at the top of the list. I was always seeing if somebody had an extra JLI issue uh, laying around when I was seven or eight. So, <laughs> How did you first discover the character, or when did you first discover him? I'm not sure about the timeline uh, of the conglomerate. Was that like 91, 92, okay, or yeah. is that... Is that around that time? Anyways, I was getting shots for school or shots for like kid shots. You know, when you're younger, you have to get, you know, anti-shot, anti-measles, anti-mumps, that sort of stuff. And I remember my dad had given me, I think I'm, I'm pretty sure there was an episode or an issue of the uh, conglomerate where they had to fight dinosaurs. I could be wrong, but there was, anyways, I remember Booster Gold was there and dinosaurs were there. So anyways, I remember getting the shot and I was like, I'm going to be brave like Booster Gold when he was fighting the dinosaurs. And of course the shot was over and I didn't even realize it. But uh, anyways, Booster Gold has always stuck with me since that point. So probably 91 or 92. So it was either five or six at that point. So. All right. I think I first noticed him in the death of Superman trade paperback when he was still with Justice League America. And then shortly after that, when he was part of Extreme Justice, oh, which did, so not, good. <laughs> it did not endear me to the character or really to life in general. But uh, eventually, in kind of the mid-2000s, when I started reading the 52 Weekly series, I mean, certainly Booster was one of the major characters of that, and he was a breakout character. I loved him in that, and I followed his series after that. So, uh, And that actually kind of segues nicely into the publication history. Booster Gold first appeared less than three years before this issue of Secret Origins came out. Created by writer-artist Dan Jurgens, Booster made his dramatic debut in issue one of the self-titled Booster Gold comic in early 1986. Actually, it would have been released in November of 1985, so like I said, just one month shy of the three years before this issue came out. Booster Gold, the series, lasted 25 issues, finally ending during the Millennium event, possibly the greatest offense of Millennium, but then again, maybe not even close to the greatest offense. Early in his publishing life, Booster appeared in two issues of New Teen Titans. Booster appeared in issue two of the newly formed Justice League by Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis. He would officially join the team with issue four and remain a constant member of Justice League International and Justice League America throughout the 80s and early 90s. In 1995, that included Extreme Justice, and Booster Gold was finally given what everyone knew he always needed, body armor. Ten years after that, Booster Gold returned to prominence when his best friend, Blue Beetle, was murdered by an old ally. After Infinite Crisis, Booster became one of the central figures of the year-long weekly series 52. He spun out of 52 with a brand new ongoing series, one that would last four years and only end when the entire DC comic book line was overhauled after Flashpoint. Recently, Booster Gold starred in Justice League Generation Lost, the new 52 Justice League International, and in Justice League 3000. Uh, did I forget anything? Uh, no. As far as I know, that's a pretty complete history of, uh, we're not counting his, uh, television appearances, are we? I was going to say, we can come back and mention that when we get to the, like, the recommended readings, too, but... Oh, sure. Great. All right, people, we are going to take a short commercial break, and Andy and I will be back in a minute with the secret origin of Booster Gold. And when... 
1994, Mark Wade, Brian Augustine, and Barry Kitson began exploring the beginnings of the world's greatest superhero team over an epic 12-issue comic maxi-series. And yes, we've just begun. That team was the Justice League of America, and that comic was JLA Year One. In 2016, eight podcasts will come together to cover this series in a single month. That month is JL May. Featuring the Fire and Water Podcast, the Power of Fishnets, Waiting for Doom, the Lantern Cast, Supermates Podcast, the Idle Head of Diabolu, Comic Reflections, and Views from the Long Box. Each podcast will cover one or two issues of JLA Year One, and then coverage will move from show to show. It all starts in the Fire and Water Podcast with issues one and two. JL May, an epic month for an epic series. Available where you find all good podcasts. Secret Origins issue 35 completed the triptych covers started in issue 33. As with the previous issues, the cover to 35 was penciled by Jerry Ordway and inked by Ty Templeton. The issue is given a 1988 cover date, but no specific month. The actual release date would have been October 18th of 88, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics. Mark Wade edited the issue, which cost $1.50 at the time. So Andy, what do you think of this cover? You know, I like it, but at the same point in time, I've certainly seen more dynamic covers on other uh, Secret Origins. The art itself, the the actual characters, uh, the perspective is all good. Uh, it's a little boring, and I feel like you know maybe it's because uh, I've I've seen a lot more dynamic uh, covers in the in the Secret Origins line. But it just it seems like the you know Max Lord is very static or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd I'd rather have maybe they you know, did something of, you know, maybe like Booster Gold stealing some cookies while uh, John is behind John's back while Max Lord has, you know, his finger up to his lips or something. I, I don't know. Something that, you know, more conveyed this era of the Justice League possibly a little bit, a little bit better. Um, and also the white star on Booster's chest. I don't did. Did he originally not have a blue star on his chest or is that just a coloring mistake? I think it's more of a coloring thing. OK. And, and maybe it's supposed that- to be somewhat shaded they tweaked his costume a lot in his early years like he originally he was going to have a cape and then you know there was the or he did have a cape uh i think early on and then he lost it immediately or whatever so um but yeah i was just wondering if that was like a that was a thing it definitely i think it's supposed to be colored a certain way but i can't tell if it's supposed to be blue or supposed to be white and just darker uh, not sure okay. um <laughs> The whole piece, when you look at the covers to 33, 34, and 35, it's a nice idea. You've got all these different Justice League International characters flying out of the building. I think this one is actually the best of the three, and I think part of it is having Maxwell Lord in the background so it doesn't just look like the characters are just overlaid on a cityscape background that was, like, illustrated differently. I think it does give a sense. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's what what other people brought up. I think that's what David Ace Gutierrez brought up. They look like color forms that you just stick on in the background. (laughs) 
the Maxwell Lord in the background gives it a little bit of continuity and makes them feel a bit more like they're in the same space. I like, I think Ordway and Templeton do a great job. They make Martian Manhunter and they make Booster Gold look tough. They look great and they look heroic. I find it a little bit curious that Martian Manhunter seems to be the one in top and the one given top billing and prominence, but he actually has the second story in the book. Booster Gold <laughs> has the first story, so I think that's a little bit interesting. I mean, it's you're right. There, there are things that they could have done with these covers to invoke more of the spirit and the humorous tone of Justice League International. I like the idea of doing the kind of triptych with all of them in the same space, but... I, I've said it before, I, I think a lot of the covers to Secret Origins tended to be kind of afterthoughts or last-minute things, so it doesn't blow me away, but I'm, I like it's it. definitely of a quality that is of good quality, but not uh, something that's very dynamic. Mm-hmm. So, uh, although it's 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 composed it's composed well, um, but it just, it feels, yeah, again, like it's very sort of color for me a little yeah. bit, so. Yeah. Okay, let's get into this. The Secret Origin of Booster Gold is written and penciled by Dan Jurgens, with inks by Tom Dazan and colors by Tom Zuko. The story is titled From the Depths, and it begins in the Justice League Embassy, where Blue Beetle is hauling out mountains of trash. He trips and falls outside Booster Gold's room, and that's when Booster shows him all of the unauthorized merchandise he plans to sell. Booster's room is full of Justice League International t-shirts, action figures, plush baby dolls, lunchboxes, crayon sets, board games, pennant flags for each member, Dr. Fate tarot card sets, Black Canary fishnet stockings, rocket red helmets, green lantern um, lanterns, and more. Booster explains this is all part of his latest plan to get rich. Blue Beetle asks why Booster is obsessed with money, and this leads Booster to tell his friend the true story of Booster Gold, even though Beetle is already looking like he regrets bringing it up. Booster Gold, whose real name is Michael John Carter, grew up in the 25th century, where, for some reason, American football continued to be super popular. Booster was the star quarterback for Gotham University, with dreams of making fat paper stacks at the professional level. On his way home after a big game, Booster is stopped by his friend Snake Eyes, and if you couldn't tell by his name, Snake Eyes is not a reputable person. In fact, he's a bookie, and he tells Booster they could be making tons of money together on sports betting. But Booster wants nothing to do with it. He doesn't even want to be seen with Snake Eyes for fear of damaging his legitimate reputation and his chances of going pro. At home, Booster meets his mother and his sister, Michelle. His mom is sick, but the family can't afford the medication, even with Michelle working two jobs to support them. I guess in the future, college athletes still don't get paid. The last thing Booster ever wants to be is a degenerate gambler like his father was, but he meets with Snake Eyes and makes a deal to keep the score low for the next game. Snake Eyes warns him if he goes down this path, he might not get out easily. Booster vows that no matter what compromises he makes, he will never throw a game. After the game, Booster uses his ill-gotten gains to pay for the medical tests on his mother. The diagnosis is not good. Michelle asks the doctor if there is any way to cure her mother. After all, it is the 25th century, she reminds him, because that's how people talk, always reminding others what epoch they exist in. 
The doctor lays out all of the expensive operations Michael and Michelle's mother needs, operations they can't afford on Michelle's salary. But Booster promises he'll get the money to save his mom. So, Michael John Carter sells his soul to the bookies and the crooks. He agrees to fix the score for two games to pay for his mother's operation. But, as is so often the case when you're dealing with criminals, they don't honor the deal. They keep him on the hook with threats of exposing him. So Booster keeps cheating. But with his mom now recovered, he can actually spend the money on himself. And the high life of wealth and women goes a long way towards assuaging his guilty conscience. That is, until the day the law catches up to him. Booster's father nearly destroyed their family with gambling, and now his mother has to witness the same fate befall her son. She tells him she would have rather died than seen Michael turn out to be a degenerate like his old man, and she says no matter what he does in the future, he can never make up for this. From this point on, Booster is no longer her son. After his arrest, Booster was thrown out of school. With his reputation a shambles and his prospects for going pro-dashed, he moves to Metropolis, where the only job he can find is night security guard at the Space Museum. While working there, he takes an interest in the lives and careers of the superheroes of the past. He decides to start his life over in the past where no one knows him and no one has prejudged him. He can find the fame and fortune and acceptance in the past that he lost in his time by going back and becoming a superhero. He raids the space museum of an alien power suit that grants him strength, a legion flight ring that grants him flight, and some other future tech that will augment his powers. He also kidnaps Skeets, a museum security robot that can be used as an information resource in his travels. Stealing Rip Hunter's time bubble, Booster Gold and Skeets head for the 1980s. We then get a very abbreviated history of Booster's entire series, basically. Skeets gave Booster information on our era's economic system, which allowed Booster to invest well, market himself, and get rich. But then his sister Michelle followed him to the past, became a superhero herself, and was then killed. Also, Booster Gold's business manager embezzled all of his money, leaving Booster broke and desperate for the Justice League's acceptance. Booster wraps up his story to Blue Beetle, saying once he sells this JLI merchandise, he'll be rich again. But the Martian Manhunter has discovered the loot and says the League will not be part of common hucksterism, and demands that Booster get rid of all of it. Booster follows Jean out into the hall, trying to convince him to change his mind, while Blue Beetle digs through the merchandise looking for Black Canary's designer lingerie. And that is the secret origin of Booster Gold. What did you think of the story? Um, it's good. It's not the one that I'm used to. It's not the post-crisis one that I'm used to. Um, it's very close to the post-crisis one that I'm used to, but uh, they changed some stuff around, So, which I haven't read a lot of Booster Gold Volume 1, so I, uh, I'm not really sure what, what went on with that. But in Booster Gold Volume 2, uh, they expand upon that a little bit more, and uh, we, we kind of see that. So, um, But overall, I, I thought it was told very well. Uh, I liked the art quite a bit. It was very sort of served its purpose. It the art wasn't jarring at all. It looked very much so in the in the vein of the uh, time period, and uh, everything was pretty on model. So that was great. The writing was very good, uh, but it was also very serviceable. It just seemed like it was you know just one thing after the other. You know, as far as checking off all the appropriate boxes. So I thought it was very good. Uh, if I had to give it like a like a grade, I'd probably give it like probably like a B plus. Like it was it was it was good, but I. Uh, 
just at some points it kind of uh the story kind of sagged and also i would have liked snake eyes to be in the trench coat the whole time so that's <laughs> but that's a minor nitpick i'm willing to let it go well, who wouldn't um <laughs> in the in the letters column mark wade who is editing the book kind of goes through some of the behind the scenes stuff and he kind of mentioned something that was a little bit fascinating because i too i haven't read a whole lot of Booster's original series. Uh, I've read a few of the issues, but he mentions that when it started, it, it did start before Crisis on Infinite Earths, and more significantly, it started before the Man of Steel miniseries where John Byrne retconned Superman's origin. And when Dan Jurgens created the character, the origin that he had planned for Booster was that Booster was going to end up getting this job in the Science Museum and be inspired by Superman, that he was going to take Superman's flight ring, his Legion flight ring, and he was going to take some of Superman's like old things, like the Brainiac like belt and everything, and his whole impetus for going back to the 20th century was going to have a lot more to do with Superman. However, as he was telling the story, Man of Steel resets everything that we know about Superman, and they're like, wait, we don't know if Superman's ever going to meet the Legion. We don't know if he he certainly didn't meet the Legion when he was a kid, so he doesn't have this Legion flight ring. So Jurgens had to scramble to basically recreate the origin like one month after he published his first idea <laughs> and has to make all of these tweaks. So I think it's in issue eight or something, Booster meets some of the members of the Legion of Superheroes and like retcons Booster's origin like a month or two months after the, he had started what he had planned for the character. So I, I thought that was kind of interesting that he was just in the middle of developing the character's backstory when this huge wrench gets thrown into it and he has to scramble to redo it. I'm really surprised that a lot of those characters fared so well uh, that were existing during the time of crisis. Uh, I've not read a lot of, I'm growing up, you know, I was born in 1985, so crisis happened, you know, the same year that I was born, stretching into, you know, uh, 85, 86. And so anyways, I grew up with everything post-crisis. So when I read comics and things like that, all of the stuff that I read as a kid, other than the Silver Age stuff I was given, uh, really didn't have any of the pre-crisis stuff. But I've gone back and I've collected quite a few things from the era of crisis. And uh, I'm surprised that so many people fared so well continuity-wise having that giant shakeup and the writers and uh, the creative teams being able to kind of like, you know, curb the tailspin that, you know, could have could have happened. They could have, you know, a lot of uh, uh, hilarity or, you know, bad stuff could have ensued, but they were clever enough to kind of work around all the problems that might have cropped up. And then uh, and when they weren't, then they got zero hard. So that's fine. Uh <laughs> and everything was fine after that. <laughs> and they lived happily ever after. Just going through some of the things in the story, um, you know, Booster sets up that he's from the future, he's from the year 2462, but the future that we see, it's not like this utopian thing, it's still very grimy, very urban, it's a little bit more, I mean, it's it's not as dark as Blade Runner, but it feels that very urban, lived-in version of Blade Runner like with Snake Eyes' trench coat and everything, and, and the future Doctor's suit with that like endlessly pinstripe vest. The uh, Snake Eyes character, uh, who, by the way, that futuristic trench coat, you know he's got like five or six vape units in there. <laughs> like, But I like Booster's line, it's on page three, when he says, Around the year 2400, there was a big movement that brought back the sport of football from Earth's past. See, that tells me that all of the things that we're hearing right now about concussion syndrome 
at all the problems, that football is going to end in our lifetime. It's going to become, uh, uh, but it's going to come back in about 400 years. As a, as a person who, uh, you know, wants everybody to, to be healthy and safe, I, I definitely understand that. But as a Green Bay Packers fan, that really hurts me. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, Chicago anyways. Bears, Chicago Bears fan. Oh, I'm married to one. And uh, let's just say that, thank goodness, we're both Blackhawks <laughs> fans, because after in the playoffs or well, I'm sorry, uh, for the playoffs for me, the pre-playoffs for you guys, uh, <laughs> the uh, it gets pretty tense around the household. So anyways, <laughs> but uh, anyways, uh, no, I, I, I think that there's a lot of interesting things if you just, you know, delve a little bit deeper, that it's definitely... Um, yeah, like it's not it's not necessarily like Blade Runner, like mm-hmm. a sort of a Neo Tokyo situation, but it's definitely like, you know, a future that is a not optimal. It's not the sort of Star Trek future right. um, or, you know, even the, you know, Serenity or Firefly future. It's it's got kind of a, a halfway measure between it's very it appears to be very capitalist. It fe- appears to be very um, sort of uh, money motivated and. Yeah. Uh, uh, sort of, you know, the still have the the last bastions of the 1970s, uh, you know, New York grime uh, left to it, like Gotham. I'm not sure about the Bat books of this time, but did they sort of portray Gotham City as uh, sort of still grimy, still Charles Bronson-y? Oh, yeah, sure. This I mean, this would have been late 80s, so this is... Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. this is coming right after Frank Miller's <coughs> one, and there was definitely more of a push to make the whole world kind of ugly, always perpetually dark, like perpetually like, you know, gas and smoke coming out of the alleys. And Well, I mean, maybe, maybe that's an, a logical extension of the, uh, you know, the, the thing is that, you know, Gotham's always going to be Gotham. Maybe the rest of it is a utopia, but Gotham's always going to be Gotham. That's so. a good point. Yeah. yeah I, hadn't thought, I like that. I actually, I, I really like that idea. <laughs> the, rest, the rest of the world can advance, but Gotham City is always going to have like a little bit of grime on it. This this kind of veneer of just like cracked cement and broken walls. So, <laughs> so getting into Booster, like the thing I love about Booster is the sort of crass immorality that he's out for number one. That he's a sell. He is a a shill, self interested because it's exactly what Dan Jurgens wanted. It's a superhero that we have never seen before. The guy who is totally about self interest and promotion and sponsorship. He will save the day, but he wants something for his time. He's not in it for the charity. That can be a hard character to like. So I like the fact that we get in his origin, yeah, he started off as a college football cheat. He he sold out. He sold himself. He you know tanked games. He underperformed for money. But at the core of that was a very noble intention. He was trying to get money to pay for his mom's operation. He didn't want anybody to die. And he was willing to compromise himself to do that. And I think we'll see that play out throughout his life. You know, even when he's helping people, you know, he, he is a good man. I, well, I don't know. I, that is a question. Do you think that Booster Gold is a good man? Oh, absolutely. Uh, because you see in the in the comic book, it establishes that at his core, he is, of course, someone who did not want to cheat. He's not he's not someone who set out. He wanted to avoid the mistakes of his father. He wanted to avoid doing anything wrong, uh, really, you know, but he was swayed in his in his goodness. He was swayed uh, to sort of uh, for better lack of a better term, the dark side, because he wanted to, you know, it's the 
uh, dare I say, Anakin-esque fall of Booster Gold, where he wanted to protect the people that he loved, and by saying that he would do anything to protect them, uh, actually ended up sort of sealing the fate of the family. So, um, you know, but it's one of those things where, yes, he is at his core a good person, but he feels as though if he has no, it's sort of a duality thing, you know, if you think about it, where he is good and he is pure and he wants to do the right thing, but he feels like it is necessary for him to take matters into his own hands, take take extreme measures that he doesn't actually need to take uh, to make things right, to make his life better. So, you know, I, I think that he is a good person. Uh, we see in volume two that he actually is a good person. Mm-hmm. I think his his real tragic flaw, like if if he has that problem, it's the fact that he needs the affirmation. He like it's not like the selflessness of doing good. He wants to do good, but he also wants to be recognized, and he wants everybody to know and believe that he is a good person. And for him, fam. and for him, that translates into fame and fortune and putting himself on big billboards. That is what legitimizes himself and his success and his heroism in his eyes. I feel that. I mean, I, uh, as anyone who knows me does, I, I, I definitely can relate to this character. I definitely can relate to the idea of not only do I want to do the right thing, but at the same point in time, it would be super great if people would recognize how great I am for doing the right thing. <laughs> and maybe that's that maybe that's a privilege thing. And I'm, I'm positive that it is, but like, it's, it's one of those things where it's just like, uh, not only, you know, it's, and, and, but I think over the course of his character arc, you see Booster, and we should all aspire to be like Booster, because over this character arc, we see him go from a character who wants that, who craves that acknowledgement for just doing basically the bare amount of minimum of right thing or doing the right thing. And then, but, you know, expecting to be rewarded for it. And we see him. That's the brutal lessons that he learns during volume two mm-hmm. is the fact that. He does all these great things, and they can never know. No yeah. one can ever know. And that's what makes a great character is that tearing between, like, I want to be recognized for my good works, and in order for my good works to actually be, be good works, no one can know that I've done this. And It's like the that's ultimate penance for the character. Yes, yes, but but he emerges on the other side of uh, just a whole being that is 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 just – uh, a character that is just fantastic. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's, you know, at the end of the new 52, or I'm sorry, at the end of uh, the pre nude 52 era with, you know, justice league uh, generation lost yeah. era booster gold, we see him become someone who is a solid leader. We see some, him, someone who is looking out for Jaime Reyes. We see him who is, you know, selfless and looking out for other people and does not expect to be, you know, sort of, but, and, but we also see the selfishness come through when he's spoiler alert, trying to save Ted Cord's life for most of the entire book. Mm -hmm. So it's, yeah, it's, it's, he's a great character. I could, I could read booster gold all day long every day and I would just be super happy about it. So he's, he's got, there's so many places that you can go with that character, but ultimately, you know, he really had this arc that proves that he is a good person even if he needs a little, uh, you know, uh, uh, help along the way to get there. He did. He absolutely had an arc, which is not something a lot of superheroes have. Most of them get locked into what, I mean, what we always say, they're always in their second act of, of their story. Booster did. We did see this evolution, especially in that second volume that came out after 52, that he had to live with the mistakes that 
he could have prevented all of these tragedies if he had just cared a little bit more to pay attention to history. And so as this penance he has to go through, and I think it, it for me it really culminated in the Batgirl issue. When, for, if you haven't, for those of you listening, if you've never read the, the Booster Gold, the second volume that came out in the mid-2000s, very much sort of like a quantum leap type of thing where he keeps going through these different events in DC history and trying to make changes for the better. And he goes to the moment in The Killing Joke where the Joker shoots Barbara Gordon and he tries to stop it and he fails. And he goes back to the time bubble and he tries to go back earlier and tries to stop the Joker and he fails. And it happens again and again and again. And every time he fails, the Joker and his goons beat him up or he makes the time stream worse. And all of these, this failure that just keeps on compounding. But what really brings it to a head is, you know, at this point, nobody has known what Booster has been doing behind the scenes to make the world better. But Batman finds out because when the Joker took the pictures of Barbara, when he was torturing her, there was one picture of Booster Gold in that role. And Batman found it. And he basically calls Booster in and he says, explain this to me. How were you there? What the hell were you doing there? And Booster just empties out his heart and like opens up and tells him what's been going on. And Batman, like, you'd think, like, he would be, like, enraged by this, but Batman, the one person who, you would just never put Batman and Booster together. They're so different. Batman has no time for this character. But Batman opens up to him, and he's like, I can tell, like, I know how many times you went back to try to save her. I know how hard you fought, and that means something. It's an amazing moment in the life of this character. It's it's played for laughs later in Justice League Generation Lost. Right. But the uh, the idea that, you know, Booster Gold says, hey, Batman trusts me like and that's and that's all I need. And that's a defining moment for that character, mm-hmm. too. That's a, a thing where Booster Gold's own like that is maybe that's the payoff. Maybe that's the reward of Kim wanting to be recognized for his good works or wanting to be recognized for doing the right thing. And no one else can know. But Batman knows and Batman, uh, especially post crisis, being a very central part of the heart of the DC universe, uh, having him know exactly what kind of a person Booster is. Maybe that's enough for Booster. And I, I felt like, honestly, like after that point, after that point in the series, which was that was pretty in the right in the middle. Right. Or like early, early middle. I think it was in the um, first year, but I don't remember. Yeah, yeah. it was. Uh, it was one of those things where. Uh, that really had an impact on him. And you could see that, like that confidence, but it wasn't like a bravado confidence. It wasn't like a Guy Gardner confidence. It was uh, a confidence as like, okay, I've been, you know, legitimized as a person who's doing the right thing. And I want to, to continue to do the right thing, not because I need recognition for it, but because since I've received recognition from the right person for the, doing the right thing in the right way, I can continue to do the right thing now, not because I want glory, but because it's the right thing to do. Any final thoughts on this story, on the origin story of Booster Gold? I liked it. I liked it. Um, it was very, uh, it was very serviceable. It was very good. Um, and I thought that it was a little bit different from the version that I kind of had heard. Uh, but I, I thought it was very enjoyable and I thought the art was very good. The Martian Manhunter profile on the last page where, when he was looking at the sort of little squishy Martian Manhunter that he was holding. <laughs> I really, uh, like that, that drawing, that, that's a very good version of the JLI era uh, Martian Manhunter, which can be kind of hard to capture if you're not Kevin McGuire. So, 
I want that room with all of those plush toys and the cabbage oh, and the Justice League. Internet. That would be fantastic. I'll I'll just take one of the pennants, man. Like that's I'm not I'm not <laughs> greedy. Uh, I'll just you know take one of the pennants or uh, you know even the uh, Doctor Fate tarot cards, man. That would be great. So <laughs> I would be remiss if I did not. Uh, say that I definitely want that Guy Gardner Cabbage Patch Kid. Like, <laughs> I, I, I certainly need it in my life. The Blue Beetle one's hilarious, too. But, like, the Guy Gardner one just is the best. So, anyways, it reminds me of, uh, did you ever read that issue where he, like, they did the Guy Gardner on ice? Mm, no, I haven't seen that. Oh, my gosh. Anyways, that that was great. But it, it seemed like a, sort of a, a, not a callback to it. And I'm not sure timeline-wise where that fits in. But <clears throat> definitely some making fun of uh, a Guy Gardner is always is always fun. I love that character, but it's it's always hilarious. All right. Um, recommended readings for people who like Booster Gold or who want to know more about Booster Gold. What would you say? Uh, I would definitely check out uh, the Justice League uh, international episodes of Batman Brave and the Bold for you know uh media uh mm-hmm. definitely uh from the justice league uh unlimited series the greatest story never told that was a good one. definitely booster gold volume two there's some really great runs there's some runs that are less good but they're still good they're just less good than the rest of them the ones where giffen and dimatteis come back to write the character for a while i think 32 and is when it starts uh, also, the issues surrounding uh, Booster Gold tries to go back and uh, save Ted Cord are very emotionally uh, uh, powerful, but they're also very well-written uh, issues. So, Yeah, those are great. Uh, for anybody who wants to get the early stuff, I know his entire series, that first volume one, was collected in a Showcase Presents Booster Gold. Uh, one volume gets the whole series, black and white. If you want color, I think that entire series has been collected digitally on Comixology. Good stuff. I, I would read those. Volume 2 is great. Check out the 52 weekly series that was collected in a couple of trades, four trades, I think. Tons of great material for this character. So. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. All right, Andy. Well, thank you very much for being my guest on the Secret Origins podcast. Where can people find you online if they want to hear more from you? You can always look me up on Facebook. And uh, a, a, another great place to find me is on Instagram. Uh, 1138 reference or at 1138 reference. Uh, I spend a lot of time on Instagram. Uh, but yeah, uh, and it, uh, if you guys like VHS tapes, Ewoks, Booster Gold, uh, pretty <laughs> pretty much covers it. No, uh, but yeah, that's uh, at 1138 reference on uh, Instagram is the place to be. All right. Well, Andy, one more time, thank you very much for being on the Secret Origins podcast. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. I'm so stoked that it actually worked out and I was able to come on and uh, talk about one of my all-time favorite superheroes. So thank you so much, Ryan. And secret admirers, don't go away because after this next break, we're going to have the origin of Martian Manhunter. All I wanted was to send a signal to Mars. How, How could I have known it would teleport you here? Whoever you are, forgive me. An alien, an innocent one, stranded on this planet. It was a golden age. Our Martian civilization was at the height of its peace and prosperity. White Martians came from beneath the planet's surface, bringing fire from the planet's guts, and they burned us all. Every trace of our once great civilization was obliterated. I lost my family, my wife, and my daughters. I was the only survivor, the last of my kind. I sought refuge on your planet. On Earth, I was hunted for 50 years. The humans are terrified of what they don't know. And sadly, I happen to fall into that category. 
Detective John Jones is what you might call my human alter ego. I'm not the only thing from outer space that's come, but right now I'm the only thing that can stop alien invasion. I dealt with these phantoms when I was a bounty hunter. I know how powerful they can be. I can't fight these fugitives alone. My name is John Jones, also known as the Martian Manhunter. Telepathy is one of my many abilities. I am a shapeshifter. Martian manpower? Flight. I change my state or phase. I'll call upon new powers. I'm Mars' sole survivor. There's a reason for that. I will defend Earth. The Vital Head of Tiamanu. A podcast for John Jones. Manhunter for Mars. His world. And the vile menagerie of villains he must confront. Available through iTunes. Shout Engine and the Internet Archive. and we're talking about the Manhunter from Mars. Now, people, I know when you think of Martian Manhunter fandom, you think of one man, Keith G. Baker. But I went with a more obscure pick, a little outside-the-box choice. So I'm thrilled to welcome one of the hosts of the Rolled Spine podcast and the Diana Prince Wonder Woman podcast. He also created the Justice League Detroit blog. It's our good friend, Diablo Frank. Welcome back, Frank. Hello! Good to be here. (laughs) Uh, I know you never get a chance to talk about Martian Manhunter, so I give you the floor. Why this character? Well, it's a kind of a weird thing. Okay, I've been reading comic books since the late 70s and, and uh, ramped up going into the 80s. But the Martian Manhunter has been around in my periphery for a good chunk of that time. And yet I never really gravitated toward the character for, for decades. I think I may have first seen him in a house ad for Just League of America number 230 with great Chuck Patton, Dick Giordano cover of Manhunter versus the Marshal. But I don't think I, I really you know knew much about him until I picked up at Kmart his superpowers action figure for like $1.50 in 1985. And it came with a mini comic, didn't make much of an impression on me. So I think the first time I really read a Marshman Hunter book was Christ on Infinite Earth number seven, which, if you're going to read an issue of that series, probably was the best possible issue to read. <laughs> Double sized. It was given to me uh, as a kid because I was wearing an Oilers jacket, and the girls at uh, Walden Books thought it looked so cute that they gave it to me. They let me pick one comic book to have for free. So lots because of. Because you were wearing just, the jacket of a football I, I team just, that doesn't looked, exist anymore? 
Yeah, I look so cute. Well, they, they still existed in 1985 or whatever it was. Sure. But it, a lot of good memories related to that. I read it on a trip from Texas to Colorado Springs to visit family, and I'd never read a story that big and that open. And because I knew Manhunter from the action figure, I made special note of his involvement. And he was really cool, good set of powers. But I didn't start to really follow the character until he turned up in JLI. I bought a ding copy of Moving Day, issue number eight, one of the funniest comic books ever created. Mm-hmm. Certainly one of the funniest ones I've ever read at that point. And I started to really enjoy that character. And then I made the mistake. I think the only comic shop I ever got to visit when I lived in Nevada, I bought a copy of Martian Manhunter number one. It was $1.75, which was a ridiculous amount of money to pay for a comic book as far as I was concerned at the time when actual comics were only 75 cents and I hated the book and it just destroyed my interest in reading Marshman or Solo Stories for years when they solicited American Secrets a few years later I was somewhat interested that book cost $4.95 at a time when comic books were only $1.25 and they'd only been that expensive for about six months so pass on that I bought Just League Task Force number one, which was a team that he was going to lead. It was sort of a spotlight book for him, but I bought it because I was a Nightwing fan, and Nightwing was in the first few issues. So I just had this deal where I kept circling Manhunter for years without really being a fan. And it wasn't until 1996 when uh, Just League A Midsummer's Nightmare came out. And I remember reading that book, and in the middle chapter, a second tragedy befalls Manhunter. And he becomes extremely angry and, and seeking vengeance for the injustice done him. And I remember just like cheering. You know, it's rare that a comic book would get me so excited. I'm like, yes. And I just, I love this one spotlight moment. There was this panel where Manhunter is getting angry and he's turning from his natural Martian form into a regular, you know, the, the classic Manhunter form. And the Justice League are like looking at him. Is like, is John okay? And it's like, uh, I, he's a lot of things right now, but I don't think okay is one of them. <laughs> and it's just such a, a total badass moment where he just goes in there and he just starts taking out the villains left and right like they're nothing. And suddenly I was like, my God, this is so awesome. Why haven't I appreciated Manhunter before this moment? And it got me into such an interest in the character. And it was so hard to find information about Martian Manhunter in 1996. He'd only been a Justice League member for years and years. He hadn't had much of the way of solo projects over those years. The ones that had been published really weren't easily found. And if you wanted to find out information about the Silver Age, good luck. You had to go out and buy these expensive issues of Detective Comics that weren't easily accessed because the internet was there, eBay was there. But having the resources and, and finding the right issues was difficult. And so I just started piecing this together over time, buying back issues of House of Mystery because those were fairly cheap. There was a fellow on uh, the DC message boards that was very helpful that, you know, writes columns for some websites and such. I can't remember his name off the top of my head right at the moment. And I, I basically just over time just started gathering more and more information on the Martian Manhunter. And at the same time, this was the early days of the DC message boards. So you're out doing, you know, having flame wars on threads and versus threads and such. And so as I'm learning about this character and I'm defending this guy since I'm liking him and I'm appreciating how much power he has and how much potential he has. I'm doing everything I can to absorb as much information about him as possible. And so since 1986, it's been 20 years now, and I just keep trying to absorb more and more information about this character, keep trying to process this character. And uh, here on the Secret Origins podcast, you know, you put out an episode and then at some point you look at the comments and you've got this brick of text that I write where I'm basically trying to write a definitive statement on each one of the characters that's covered on this podcast. And usually I can do that. I mean, it, it may take a little bit of space. I actually try to make a point when there's two characters in an issue of doing one post and then giving other people a chance to talk so they're not drowning in my text between theirs. But usually if I, if I you know, do a post about the elongated man or I do a post about Batman, I've said most everything I have to say about that character in that post. And I think that most characters you can boil down to a few paragraphs. 
And one of the reasons why I'm so fascinated by The Martian Manhunter is even after 20 years, I'd have a great deal of difficulty doing that because the character defies genre. He defies most of the boundaries that are found for superheroes. You could literally do any story that's superhero-related, comic book-related with The Martian Manhunter. He has such great versatility, such a variety of powers. Uh, he embodies so much of what I love in comics and things that, you know, he, he's a guy who has taken so many characters, like so many cast-offs. You know, Superman's old history from the Silver Age that they didn't want to bother with after John Byrne's reboot. He took that on and made it even better than it was when during the Wiser era. Uh, I used to be a fan of the X-Men. He basically has all the powers of all the X-Men in one character. But at the same time, he has such an incredible vulnerability because literally anybody with an open flame, depending on the, the nature of the story, can take this guy out. So you can have these enormous cosmic stories where he's fighting the new gods or you can be in a detective story where some random schmo just manages to take him out with a blowtorch. And all those stories work for this character. So literally, you can do anything with him. He's a blank page. And so he's endlessly fascinating to me. If, if ever Genie came and said, you get to write comic books, but you only get to write one character for your entire career, I'd pick the Martian Manhunter because there's no limit to what stories you can tell with this character. I could, I could never exhaust all the stories I could tell with the Martian Manhunter. Hmm. That's bold, but I, I kind of agree. He is... He does fit that mold where he's so adaptable, so mutable for the for the times, for the situations, the power sets. It's yeah, it's very interesting. I it's funny that you mentioned the superpowers toy. I never saw that toy, and I, I wasn't buying the toys from the from the rack. I was getting a lot of them as hand me downs or as uh, like at garage sales or something when I was growing up. But I kind of knew about the first wave of the team. So for the longest time, I thought Hawkman was an original member of the Justice League just because, of, just because he was on the team. And then Robin was just the tag along because he was Batman's sidekick. But I thought Hawkman was one of the like, classic Justice League characters. And it took me a while to kind of – well, it wasn't until really later on when I was getting into comics and later with the age of the internet that I found out that there was a toy and that this, the whole thing had kind of been different. My first exposure with the character in comics was, I think, an issue of Justice League Task Force. Uh, and I thought he was—I thought he was cool, but I didn't pay much more attention to him until the Justice League animated series, where he was so prevalent in that, and that really got me to think more about the character. There's something about the character that is is deeply fascinating. He is one of my favorite. He's easily in my top ten DC heroes, and yeah, the the things that you can do with him—it's it, crazy. Um, before we dive too much more into that, let me go through the publication history. And of course, you'll be able to correct me on this or refute any of this if I get something wrong. Although the title of Manhunter from Mars was first used for an unrelated character in the pages of Batman issue 78 back in 1953, the character, John Jones, the Martian Manhunter we know and love today, debuted in a backup strip in Detective Comics issue 225 in November 1955, almost a year before the introduction of Barry Allen and what is considered the dawn of the Silver Age of Comics. Created by writer Joe Samichson and artist Joe Serta, the Martian Manhunter stayed in Detective Comics for 102 consecutive issues. In the midst of this nine-year run, Jean became a founding member of the Justice League of America in The Brave and the Bold, issue 28. After the three obligatory trial issues, the Justice League spun off into its own regular series. Throughout the 1960s, Jean appeared in most of the first 71 issues of Justice League of America. The Alien Atlas's backup feature in Detective Comics ended in 1964 with issue 326. Two months later, he began a regular feature in House of Mystery, starting with issue 143 and lasting until 173. 
After leaving both House of Mystery and Justice League of America, John Jones made only Spartan appearances in the 1970s as a guest in books like Adventure Comics and World's Finest. In 1984, the Martian Manhunter returned to the Justice League in dramatic fashion to thwart an invasion of Earth by his fellow Martians in issues 228 through 230. After that, Aquaman disbanded the original team and reformed the group in the Motor City of Detroit. Jean was one of the few veterans to stay with the team, which he did until the final issue of the series, 261, during the Legends event. John Jones was there when the Justice League reformed after Legends and even became the team leader when it rebranded as Justice League International. He got his first self-titled miniseries in 1988 and a three-issue miniseries in 1993 called Martian Manhunter American Secrets. In late 1996, John was among the Magnificent Seven of the newly relaunched JLA by Grant Morrison and Howard Porter. Spinning out of the success of JLA, The Martian Manhunter's first ongoing series was launched in 1998, written by John Ostrander and with art by Tom Mandrake. That series lasted 36 issues, ending in 2001. The early aughts were not exactly prolific for Martian Manhunter. He was marginalized or ignored in many of the crossover events. He failed to make the cut of the post-Infinite Crisis Justice League, not even the new Outsiders. And he was ignobly killed off during the start of Final Crisis. He returned a few years later at the end of Blackest Night and was one of the major players of the Brightest Day series. But when the New 52 launched, Jean was stripped of his status as founding member of the Justice League. Instead, he was relegated to a neutered version of Stormwatch, and then a demon baby version of Justice League of America. Most recently, Jean got another ongoing series under the DCU banner, but that book will only last 12 issues as it's scheduled for cancellation when DC rebirths itself this summer. Usually at this point I ask if I missed anything, but I know full well that I did, and you can point that out. So instead, were there any significant parts of this publication history that you wanted to comment on? Not really. I think that's a pretty solid overview. And you said that you were not a fan of his original miniseries, that one from 88? Well, here's the thing. I hated it. it. It was not what the me of that time period wanted. And I still think that there were some pretty major missteps in that. I think that it was so anti-commercial that it hurt the character as a, as a solo property. But I also understand, and I've talked with the, the writer about this, that was a time for reinvention. Everybody wanted to do bold new directions. They did a bold new direction in that miniseries. And, you know, a lot of what people love about The Marsh Manhunter came out of that miniseries, but very few people actually read it. They only know its references in other books, other titles. It's, it's being, you know, repackaged for, for different volumes. Mm-hmm. And they love that incarnation of the character. And it's interesting because... Most people, if you go back and you read the Silver Age stories, they wouldn't recognize the Marsh Manhunter that they know from those stories. The Marsh Manhunter is possibly the most successful retcon of all time in that even a nostalgia horror like Alex Ross doesn't go back to the Silver Age stuff when he did Justice. He was constantly referencing stuff that was birthed out of Denny O'Neill's revisions, out of J.M. DeMatteis' revisions. So it was definitely a, a valuable series. It definitely helped to form the character that I loved. I just don't know that it's something that was a good outreach book for anybody who wasn't already a Marsh Manhunter fan. And again, as somebody who had an interest in the character and bought that book for that reason, and it managed to turn me off at that point in time. And I, I, I've read it since then. It's okay, but it, it's not the strongest work of the character or the creators. I haven't read that series, but I brought that up because this story in Secret Origins kind of spins out of that or was one of the stories to follow that and kind of retweaked it and referenced that in some ways. So 
actually, it, it's sort of a point of contention with me because you've never gotten a secret origin story that really gave any kind of overview of the character's career. And when you look at like all these Roy Thomas secret origins where he makes a point of giving you a really nice overview of everything the character's done or just at least a sense of their entire history with the exception of stuff that had to be tweaked because of the crisis – but with Manhunter, he never got that. There wasn't, you know, a Secret Origins story out there that was encompassing. They've done reprints of his very first story a number of times. And, of course, the Martian Manhunter miniseries from 1988 was all about saying that most of the stuff that happened in the Silver Age wasn't true, that it was a fiction created in Manhunter's fevered mind as it connected with his first Earthman, Solar Dell, which wasn't even the name of that character in the Silver Age. So here you have the Secret Origins story, and not only do they not tell you really the Secret Origins, since a lot of that was covered in the miniseries, but by denying all that Silver Age history, you've never had a comprehensive secret origin for the character, and it makes it that much easier to forget everything that happened with that character before, like 1984, unless it was an early Justice League story. Good point. Well, are you ready to tell our guests this origin of the Martian Manhunter? Uh, sure. Pretty straightforward. It's fairly simple. There's actually no dialogue in the story. The entire thing is told in prose and illustrations. Basically, there's a retired police officer who's in bed with his wife, and suddenly he startles from this dream of the Martian Manhunter, and he's wondering why this images would enter his mind. So he starts reflecting on his personal history. He'd been a beat cop, presumably in Middletown, Colorado, since that's where the post-crisis DC lore says Manhunter was active. Maybe in Denver, too. There's a Denver Dispatch newspaper shown at one point. Point being, this guy was a beat cop. And he knew this fellow, John Jones, who looked like a cop straight out of the uh, TV shows of the 50s and 60s. He was a sharp dresser. He had a crime-solving rate that was astronomical. He could have written his own ticket, but all he wanted to do was solve these crimes. That's all he seemed to be interested in. And they managed to become friends, as friendly as a, a star detective and a plain Jane cop could be. But then one night, Jones shows up at the police station, and he looks like near to death. And suddenly he turns into his Martian Manhunter form. And Manhunter fills this rookie cop's mind or this young cop's mind with images of his origin, how he had been transported to Earth by Dr. Erdell, and he was this sort of deformed-looking creature who then took on a more palatable form that we recognize as the Martian Manhunter, that this uh, scientist appeared to die in front of John Jones and stranded on Earth, realizing that he was in a nation and in a world that was very paranoid. This was 1950s America, and that would not be receptive to a Martian visitor, regardless of his intention. Manhunter basically used the only method by which he could do research in that time period without attracting attention to himself. He turned on Ardell's television and started watching the shows. He saw that one of the most revered figures on that television were the TV detectives. They were out there righting wrongs. You know, John Jones wanted to contribute while he was here on Earth. He wanted to do things that would make him feel good about his presence there and would make people around him feel good about him. So he becomes a cop. But first, he's invisibly watching police procedures and he's averting crimes in his Martian form, notably not being invisible. And uh, there were police reports of this green giant attacking criminals. But ultimately, he manages to shapeshift into the form of plainclothes detective John Jones. And using telepathy, he creates a false history for himself in the minds of various people in this precinct. So he's able to essentially walk in on the street and become a police detective without any social security numbers, without any back history. So he's out there, he's solving all these crimes, and then there's a case where, I don't recall if it was a mayor or a governor, but some high-ranking official's daughter is kidnapped. And Manhunter's going to try to save this little girl. Unfortunately, they're holed up, the criminals, in a foundry, and that exposure to heat, his great vulnerability, makes it impossible for Jones to save this girl. Hence him coming back to the station and finding a cop, letting him know everything about himself to set this guy up for another run at the foundry. So this cop 
managed to get by the gangsters and turn off the furnaces in the foundry. He gets shot in the shoulder in the process, but he sets up a circumstance by which the Manhunter can come in at full strength and knock out the gangsters and make off with the girl. Unfortunately, he had his memory stripped from him, and he just wakes up an amnesiac in relation to the events that had made him appear to be a hero cop. So, you know, he just ended up taking the credit by default and having the rest of his career and still being associated with John Jones until he appeared to be killed in a, uh, a riot in 1969. And so, you know, this guy's been out of his life for 20 years. He's had his career. He's retired. But all of a sudden, these memories are back and they tie it into the Manhunter miniseries where Manhunter had labored under false memories most of his career had been revealed that he had a different history than he'd believed and that having been an established hero all these years, he was finally comfortable with lifting all these mind wipes he'd done to people to prevent them from knowing what he had been and basically visits his friend again after all these decades, realizing that they're now at a point where he can be honest about himself, honest about where he's from and what his history is and give back these things that he took from people that he cared about out of necessity. All right. Thank you for that. Uh, a few quick credits. The story was written by Mark Verheiden and with art by Ken Stacy. I knew Mark Verheiden because he was writing the Aliens comics for Dark Horse, which I was a big fan of when I first started collecting. Didn't know anything about this artist, Ken Stacy. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, Verheiden, I, I, if you, that's how you pronounce it. I don't know how to pronounce that I name. It's Verheiden, yeah. Okay. Uh, he's actually, he's he's much more famous as a screenwriter than he is in comics. He mm-hmm. left I think through his Dark Horse connection and their media ties, he's worked on the movies Time Cop, The Mask, My Name is Bruce. He was a writer and a producer on the Battlestar Galactica relaunch, Heroes, Falling Skies. So he's had quite a prolific career. Ken Stacy was somebody I was really familiar with in the 80s because he was a guy who did a lot of covers for independent books. He had this sort of cool retro style. He kind of reminded me of a more straight-laced version of Mitch O'Connell. And he did a lot of covers for licensed books, uh, companies like Kamiko, and uh, he did a lot of stuff for Marvel. And he eventually opened up his own uh, illustration studio where he put out art books and deals in a lot of materials from like 40s, 50s, airplanes, cars. He's done some comic work as well. Uh, for DC, he did a miniseries called Tempest Fusion. But I think he's mostly just known for his covers and that particular distinctive style he has. Getting right to the story, I loved this story. Uh, I've always been a fan of this story. I just it's a it's a really good blend of sort of a classic, not a pulp story, but it has that sort of uh, narrative of you know a hard-boiled cop telling a story of a past adventure with this kind of moody, atmospheric art. The style. I mean, I know this is. 15, 20 years ahead, but it's very much like what Darwin Cook would do with the New Frontier, um, up to the point where it's like the same three-panel page layout. Cook used the exact same thing. And we get this version of the Martian Manhunter, which plays very heavily into those themes of alienation and the fear of the times, you know, the communist Red Scare having to hide his identity. And this is one of my favorite elements of the Martian Manhunter. You talked about if you got to write the character, you know, you could write pretty much any situation. If I was in that place, like, this is what I would focus on. I would focus on these themes of alienation, paranoia, fear, kind of steep it in the roots of the 1950s. And I think those are still kind of relevant today when you look at what's going on with the hysteria over Syrian refugee crisis. You got petitions to ban all Muslims from this country. Um, even fear about like homophobia and, and people feeling that they still need to be closeted, the fear of coming out for whatever their you know sexual orientation or their religion is. 
John Jones plays into a lot of those things, and I think he can be a cipher for those kind of stories, and I like that about the character. What do you think? Oh, absolutely agree. It's like with the X-Men. Brian Singer yeah, has been yeah, exactly. years and years. But what drew him to the X-Men in the first place was that his ability to use the X-Men as an allegory for all those themes that you mentioned. Any kind of persecution of things that are other than what's the normative notion of what humanity is supposed to be. And so just as the X-Men can distill that, so does the Martian Manhunter. He is an icon for the disenfranchised. Uh, one of the things I love about the character is he's sort of the patron saint of loser heroes. The guy who's an also ran a, a non- entity, the non-merchandisable character that represents all these people that don't have anybody to represent them. He can be trans if you want him to be. He can be gay if you want him to be. He can be black. He can be Muslim. He can be whatever you want him to be. He represents anything that's other than the norm. He's a constant outsider. And you know, the 50s is one of the perfect periods to do that type of story. I love the combination of the bright, sunny visage of the 50s and the dark undercurrent of blacklisting and prejudice that's there as well you know it's the perfect time period to show those contrasts between how great it could be if you were a humanity's ideal or or you were part of the american century but if you weren't part of what people expected you to be if you did not conform then that was one of the worst time periods Mm -hmm. you could in so you had this wonderful contrast so that works so well for the manhunter character because that's what he's about but by the same token as you say this character is still relevant today because as long as there's an other that can be persecuted the manhunter is the representative as a superhero yeah exactly i think this this captures that and it did something very interesting which i liked which most of this is talking about Jean Jones the Manhunter as a cop. A lot of this we just see him as a plainclothes detective, but of course looking like the most iconic sort of heroic straight-jawed plainclothes detective. But when we actually get it, when he does this sort of info dump into this other cop's head, when he kind of does this mind meld, we see of his origin that moment where he's sort of brought to Earth. We never get a sense of Mars. We never get any scenes played out on the Red Planet. And I gotta say, I I like that. Uh, I think Rob Kelly has talked at times that how he's kind of sick of Aquaman's stories set on Atlantis, or that dwell too much with Aquaman's you know connection to the Atlanteans and having to be the king of this country because it it narrows him down there. I'm kind of the same way. I, I'm usually pretty bored with Martian Manhunter stories that dwell too much on Mars or his connection to other Martians. I like him on Earth as the sort of stranded refugee of, of being in hiding. So I like his first moment, like the earliest moment in his life being that moment where he pops up in Erdell's lab. How, what do you think about that? Are, are you a fan of the Mars aspect? or? I agree with Rob Kelly. I'm tired of Atlantis too. I, I like Aquaman as being the hero who's water-based. I don't feel like he needs to be in Atlantis and that takes him too close to Namor territory. Mm-hmm. But also... I've read enough Atlanta stories. I don't find that to be an interesting place. I don't think most of the people there are very interesting. But as a guy who's done such a deep dive in Mars Manhunter, who's devoted so much of my personal time into researching Mars, I find Mars fascinating, but I can understand why other people wouldn't because usually you only get a snippet of Mars. You know, it's they're usually creating entirely new characters whenever they do a new Mars story. You don't ever have any, any sense of them building from anything that happened prior. And there's a lot of contradictory information about the planet. So for me, in my brain, since I'm trying to connect all these dots from different time periods and different creators, it's fascinating to me. And I think that it's an interesting place where you can tell interesting stories. But the thing of it is, is 
because of the versatility of the character, if all you want to do is focus on those weird detective stories where he's having noir type stories, but with that element of the paranormal as well, that sort of X-Files vibe, you can do that. You can completely ignore the planet of Mars and tell those stories instead. It's, it's again, it's one of the things I love about the characters. You can go through those extremes. He can be this completely outrageous science fantasy character as he is in his New 52 series. Or you can go back to those early detective stories where he just has a few extra powers beyond being a, a cop. You know, it just gives him a little extra spice, a little extra flavor. And they're both valid. I'm sort of torn because I like what Morrison did with creating the White Martians because it plays into, again, the theory of him being kind of a refugee stranded on this earth, playing into that theme of kind of an ethnic cleansing uh, or a, a sort of genocide on the homeland. You know, yeah, but he, a lot he, of the Supergirl TV show right now. Exactly, exactly. And so I like that idea as played out, but I, it feels like just in a short period of time, they've gone back to that well a lot. I agree. I, I think you need to tell different kinds of stories. I think that if every Martian story is about racial prejudice and genocide, you, you fatigue people. And it starts to feel a little bit tacky, too. I mean, you, you can't help but uh, recall Holocaust imagery when you bring this type mm. of stuff up. And it somewhat it feels like it's minimizing the actual real-world issues of, of the Kosovo, your, right. you know, Germany, all these places where that really happened. You make it minimalized by making it this fantasy story. I think it's too easy to push a button. It, it's, a, it's a way of getting people to immediately – you know, feel, you know, feel my feel button. I'm pushing your feel button right now. So it does get overplayed. I, I wish that if they were going to go to Mars, they would tell some different kinds of stories. But you're right. They typically fall back to that same default. Yeah. I, what I do like about that, though, particularly what Grant Morrison did, but Denny O'Neill did to some degree as well, is that when Martian Manor shows up on Earth, and especially in that origin story, he talks about Mars as though it's some sort of paradise. And of course, he's so outrageously powerful, so much more powerful than human beings, that he just seems like this glorious messianic figure coming to us lowly humans. And, you know, we're just these petty people that hate him and fear him. And what's nice about the White Martians is it makes John an other, even on his own planet. He, it makes him a minority. It makes him a less powerful figure because there are armies of people that would be happy to kill him. Mm-hmm for another reason than his skin or for his culture. Um, so he, it others him even on his own world. And so that, that helps to crystallize that aspect of the character. So I do appreciate that, that when they play that up, at least it does have a, a positive impact on the character and what he is means his, his beyond just being a costume hero. Getting back to the story. I, I, I just lo- it's such a simple affectation, but it's brilliant that he can just walk into a police station and he doesn't need a certificate. He doesn't need a resume. He doesn't need a past. He can just convince the people that he's always had it. Um, and that's a, a brilliant aspect of his powers. And when you think of somebody with this power set, that he's got nearly Superman-level strength, flight, invulnerability, except when there's an open flame, but also all of the cloaking abilities of going invisible, going intangible, the telepathy. It's kind of a scary level of powers, but what does he do when he comes to Earth? He watches TV to find out about us, and I like the effect of like, what is explained. I think this part is brilliant when they explain that for somebody who is a telepath, who can communicate with people all the time, just getting a, a mental sense of what they're thinking, what they're feeling, all of that, to watch something like television gives him the ability to be surprised from the first time because he can't connect with the characters on screen that way. I love that little detail, and that would be something so unique and so refreshing for a character like him. 
So this is the way he studies our culture, is just by watching TV. And what does he gravitate to? He gravitates to the heroic cop of the 50s and 60s TV shows. And that's what he wants to be. He could do anything. He could... He could be a world leader by impersonating people. He could manipulate the world, the earth, to his means. But he chooses to be a good guy. He chooses to be a pretty pedestrian, low-level enforcer of righteousness and good. And that's so classically, iconically heroic that I love that part about him. It's interesting because I love his extra Superman powers. I I love all those sort of stealth powers and, you know, the fact that he has all these powers that are usually given to isolated X-Men, he has them all in one place. You know, those powers just fire up my imagination more than strength and heat vision and the like. But what's interesting is you can look at that story and see an ethical issue with him going in there and screwing around with people's memories, but then you realize what he would be capable of doing, how much more uh, he could do to Earthlings with his powers, and the fact that he just does stuff out of necessity and that being an alien and having a different code of morals for him to be as moral of that as that and to only have those transgressions you you have to appreciate what a more objectively moral character the manhunter is than most of the superheroes and it makes me think back to david goyer's comments when he was talking about trying to adapt the character for the screen <sighs> how oh he's he comes to earth and becomes a homicide detective dream big <laughs> and it just shows a fundamental misunderstanding of dc comics but but specifically the marsh manhunter because this is a person as as you mentioned he's a refugee he's a person who is from another planet and he comes to our place and he doesn't bring Martian science and try to cure cancer. He doesn't try to overthrow dictators. This isn't his home. He's a visitor here. He recognizes too that he has an extreme vulnerability where if somebody really had an issue with him, they could take him out. Virtually anybody could take him out. And you're talking about a situation where he's from a telepathic culture where you know everybody so intimately so that you, when you think about it on Earth, you know, most murders are committed by people that you know, people that you love and people that you trust. So even these people that you have this, this core connection to are the people that are most likely to do you the most grievous transgression. And so he comes to our culture and he's aware of this and he's used to having that level of intimacy and now he's in this place where anybody could go at you at any time and unless he's making an active effort to telepathically mind read somebody to know what their intentions are at that particular moment, humankind is so unpredictable that even your most trusted ally can turn on you and in his superhero career that's happened a number of times. So he's in a completely alien and very hostile environment. He is not an imperialist. He's not here to come and turn us into Mars. He's here because circumstances have left him here, and he wants to be beneficial. He wants to do some good, but he's not trying to completely change Earth culture. He's not trying to become our savior, and if he did, he would probably be destroyed because there are so many forces that would align against him. So he's just here trying to exist and trying to be as beneficial as he can without transgressing our boundaries and his own. That's admirable, and I think that's much more interesting and much more complex than dun da da. Here comes Superman; he's going to save us all. You know, it just I, I find that a much more intriguing as a, a, the story potential of that is, is much more rich to my mind. Mm-hmm. You know, thinking about how this connected to the previous series, where you mentioned that he discovered that so many aspects of his life were a lie, up to and including the part that Erdell was not dead, which I was surprised when I found out that part, but. He realizes that he's been living a lie, so he kind of you get the sense that he's going around to people that he knew, people that he may have kind of brainwashed or put a little Martian telepathic whammy on their head to make them forget something about him. And the story ends with him revisiting a friend, and they just look at each other, and they know each other, and they embrace, and there's a hug. And 
I, I just love the sort of tender feeling of this ending that two people from literally worlds apart come together and embrace as friends because they had that commonality of service and being a police and what that meant. And I like through that retcon, it made John Jones much more uh, of a, a clear character. He was a happier guy. He was a more of a straightforward superhero. And he was living this existence with this fantasy notion of what Mars was all those years per the retcon. And then all of a sudden, he's reintroduced to this enormous tragedy, the realization that his entire race is gone, that his wife and his daughter had died from a plague that he himself nearly succumbed to. He, he had all this weight of, of emotion and all the tumult that they would come with remembering that again. But having been given that, that memories back and having found himself in a place where he could absorb that because the, the whole part is that he didn't uh, – Solar Dell and presumably his god Aronmir didn't want him to go mad from you know everything that he'd experienced. And so losing those memories was an opportunity for him to gather himself and gather his strength so that he could accept that weight. But having taken that on, he didn't enjoy the bliss of ignorance. It, it, he wanted to remember his family. He wanted to remember his society. It brought more to his life and enriched him as a character and made his life more full than it had been through simple superheroics. And so while he recognized the need at one time to take away these memories from other people, he realized that they deserved that as well, for good or for ill. They deserved to have those memories because he himself had been enriched by his lost memories. So there's a lot going on there beyond just the human connection, but that's a beautiful portion as well. The last thing that I wanted to mention on this, like I know that we talked about, or you mentioned that he was kind of based after crisis in Middleton, Colorado, or maybe at one point it was Denver or something like that. I really don't like the idea of him living in Colorado. I mean, you could make it up as as a fictional city, but it feels arbitrary. It feels like somebody chose that at an editorial level just because state of Colorado is underrepresented in superhero comics. But when you take this guy, this kind of hard-boiled detective character, like he was presenting himself to be, if you're going with a conventional real-life city, then you got to go with something like New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, San Francisco, maybe New Orleans or Miami, but not Denver, not someplace in Colorado. Colorado's too nice. It's, the people there are too happy. <laughs> well, and if you read American Secrets, uh, there, if there's a running joke in the first issue where you're from Denver, Colorado, <laughs> you're out there in the woods, you know, way out in the booties. What are you doing here in the big city, you know? Yeah, yeah. relative to the 1950s, he would be kind of a bumpkin from Colorado. And I I tend to agree. There's actually a – I had a bit of a feud with this uh, blogger, Scipio Garling, uh, because uh, first he decided he was going to name the city Apex City – and it actually managed to get into a reference book at one point, even though in the comics it was eventually decided that the city was named Middletown. But uh, Scipio presumed, based on uh, various evidence from the, the Silver Age stories, that Middletown was in Florida. And then uh, I, I took my own evidence and I felt that it was in the Northeast, which is where most superheroes are based anyway. And to explain his proximity to Gotham since the Batman and Marshman are shared a, a major villain, Professor Arnold Hugo. Mm-hmm. So um, it doesn't really matter where he's at, so, but – I, I do tend to agree. I, in my own head canon, he was in Middletown first and then eventually found himself in Denver because at this point, as a guy who showed up here in 1950 and we're now living in the year 2016, there's plenty of time for him to have been in both. And I, I don't – for me, I don't really need him to have been in Denver in his early career. But I have no problem with him at some point in his career having worked there as well. I think I would probably set him on the West Coast. I think with with the influence of TV, with the – Red Scare and its infusion in media and things like that. 
I think I would probably put him in Los Angeles, maybe San Francisco or a surrogate city, like a middle town or something. But I would probably put it in California with a kind of Hollywood land vibe. Well, when you look at Middletown, it's a it's a, obviously a major metropolitan city. It's very large. It's got a lot of stuff in it, but it's all very clean, very new looking. So it being the West Coast would make sense as well. But for me personally, especially if, if, if you're dealing with modern stories, uh, Grant Morrison and Mark Miller and uh, John Ostrander all made a point of highlighting what an international hero Marshmander was in the nights, <laughs> how he was apparently better known in the Southern Hemisphere than Superman because he was more active outside of the United States than most of the heroes. So if you're going to do a, a modern-day Marshmander series set on Earth, I personally think you should go international with him and send him to either the south, southern hemisphere or to another continent entirely. That's a good point. And that's something that we didn't really talk about was his history as a sort of, not necessarily a James Bond character, but an international kind of globetrotting guy fighting this villainous, like, specter-like organization. Yeah, the vulture. Vulture, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah again, that's part of the versatility of the character is as long as you get the core characterization. This is a guy who is very caring. He's a person who is both an alien outsider and more human than human, more humane than humanity. So as long as you get that core sense of, of the character, you can put him in virtually any surrounding and he works. In those earliest stories, it was it was detective stories with a, a little paranormal element. Then they became superhero stories when that became popular, which is part of the reason why Mark Spender is not the first hero of the Silver Age because he became a superhero only after Flash proved that it was marketable. Then later on, he was a involved in the supernatural the diablo idol head would open up once a month and a giant kaiju monster would turn up and he'd have to fight it with his little other dimensional sidekick and then he became essentially a super spy fighting an international criminal organization then he went off and had the grim dystopian science fantasy of the the bronze age stories then he comes back to being a superhero there's such a wide breadth of stories you can tell with this character and it's like you take somebody like batman you could tell a lot of stories with him but the entire decade of the 1950s, a lot of Batman fans want to disavow because he spends so much time fighting goofy aliens. You can't really do that with Batman. With Superman, I've never felt like you could do good supernatural stories with him. You don't, can't really tell a horror story with Superman because Superman is all about hope and about uh, the ability to, to accomplish things. So that goes – that's in sharp contrast to horror. But because of the Manhunter's versatility and because of his ability to absorb retcons, because he isn't as crystalline as other superheroes, you can have stories where he fails. You can have stories where horrific things happen. You can tell stories about goofy aliens. I mean the guy's name is the Martian Manhunter. So no matter how serious and grim and gritty the story gets, at the end of the day, he's sort of ridiculous and you have to have that little bit of an attachment to realize – you know, it's goofy. He's the Martian Manhunter. He's this big green alien guy. So you can only take it so seriously or you, you have a little bit of an undercurrent of satire as well. You can just do so much with him and there's nothing that's wrong with any story you tell with the Manhunter just as so long as his core characterization is correct. Any final thoughts on this origin story? No, like I said, I, one of these days, I, I've actually thought about trying to get it done as a commission. I want to do, I, I want to see an actual secret origin that covers an entire history. So much of what people know about the character dates back to 84 or 88. Mm -hmm. And you know, there's decades of history that isn't covered there. But recognizing the circumstances in 1988, recognizing that a lot of his history was already being covered in the Manhunter miniseries, this was a cool story. And I guarantee, I, for the longest time, I thought Darwin Cook had uh, borrowed from Steve Englehart's uh, 1977 Justice League origin story. 
where it was revealed that the Justice League actually formed because of a Martian invasion involving Commander Blanks, mm-hmm. and that most of the core members of the Justice League already knew each other before their official origin story of Justice League number nine. And it turns out that that was parallel thinking, that Darwin Quick had probably never read that story. He doesn't even particularly like superheroes. He did some research to create the New Frontier, but there's no way you can tell me that he didn't read this story because there's so much of this story that informs his work on that, that book. So I, I have to value the story because I think it gave Darwin Cook some insight into the character and informed his choices. And, I, I, you know, that's one of the best representations of the character, especially as a, an outreach for people that aren't familiar with the character. So if nothing else, the, I have to thank this story for what it did for The New Frontier. Absolutely. And that would be my first recommended reading. If, if a fan wants to know more about The Martian Manhunter, certainly The New Frontier covers a lot of ground. It's not Man- Martian Manhunter-centric, but he is one of the standout characters in that. And I think Darwin Cook had a really good handle on the character at the time. So, Yeah, I mean, he, he basically came out and said that he was his favorite character in the story, that, that he never had thought a thing about John Jones until he started writing him, which is something you hear a lot. When people start to write John Jones, they realize the potential of the character. They're like, oh, my God, I don't know why I didn't love this character before, but I love writing them now. Well, he is, I think, as you said, because he's so easily adaptable, he's a good vessel for writers to put themselves into and find whatever their neuroses are, whatever the you know, alienation that they feel. I think a lot of writers can find a voice with this character. Yeah, and he gives you a real opportunity for philosophy and mm-hmm. for considering the human condition and such, and writers obviously love to do that. Um, other recommended readings, I know the the first couple years, or maybe the first two years of the John Ostrander and Tom Mandrake series have been collected in trade paperbacks. Uh, I don't think the other miniseries or, the, uh, or American Secrets, I don't think they've been collected. Uh, the Others Among Us was collected. Oh, yeah, yeah. I it's read like, that. And I nobody, not. nobody wants to remember that. <laughs> <laughs> what did you think of his costume in that, the, the redesigned costume? Um, I didn't like the cone head. Mm-hmm. You know, I've, I've mocked it many times. But, you know, it, it's funny. One of the issues I have with the current Marshman Hunter series is it's one of the best-drawn man, probably the best-drawn Manhunter series in terms of just, like, sheer superhero fan bravura appeal of, of all the different lines. Is that Eddie it. Barrows? Yeah, it's Eddie Barrow. Yeah, he's a good yeah. – But this is probably the only Manhunter series that's ever existed that I don't see any life in after. I don't think anybody can build anything because it's so isolated and it's so far removed from the character. There's not really a lot you can do coming out of that series. And the one thing I will say about The Others Among Us is that for starters, the Jose Ladron costume design very much informed – the look of the character in Young Justice, the cartoon, Mm -hmm. and that in turn informed his appearance on the Supergirl television show. So if nothing else, that costume design has life beyond the miniseries. But there were some fun elements, and I I like the villainous Cayenne. I like the White Martians, the fact that you had named characters that they made a point of trying to develop to some degree. So while I wouldn't recommend that series to anybody that wasn't like a hardcore Manhunter fan, at least there was something you could pull from that book. Virtually anything that's Manhunter, you can pull something interesting out of, but you don't necessarily have a great story there. Right. And it's, it's very confusing, and it's, it's a mess, and the Manhunter himself is really unlikable. So, you know, but it's a, it's a nice design, and there were obviously elements of it that worked well in other media. I mean, really, if you look at the Supergirl show, he is the Conehead Hunter. He has that long sort of vegetable-looking head. It's just that the way they, they adapt it for the show, it actually works. It just makes him look like an alien rather than a you know, a Saturday Night Live sketch. <laughs> oh, those would be great characters to bring on the show. Why don't they have Dan Aykroyd on the Supergirl? <laughs> um, yeah, and final recommendation, and you and Rob and Shag covered it on an earlier episode of the Fire and Water podcast, 
but I really like that three-parter in Justice League of America 228 through 230 when the Marshal leads the the Martian invasion of Earth and and John Jones comes back to the League after years in absence. I really like that story. Yeah, it's it's a story that you can't apply too much logic to, but it's fun so long as you you don't turn the brain on too high of a you know as long as the sensitivity of your brain isn't too highly registered, then you'll you'll be able to enjoy it. Why? Because Black Canary <laughs> used her jujitsu against a squad of Martians. That- it's Independence Day in comic book form, so as long <laughs> yeah. as you take pleasure in in that kind of suburb blockbuster style storytelling, and and I I enjoyed the introduction of uh, Hunter Commander Jin. I like the Marshal. It's just fun. That was the only time up to that point that you'd had a proper. Martian invasion of Earth, so that was fun. Any other stories you recommend? I, I wouldn't contradict any of the ones you recommended. Um, I also would have to say that even though it's not available in trade paperback, there's a three-volume miniseries, American Secrets. I, I think it's absolutely a lost gem. It's a story that I read it, and it took me a few days to figure out whether or not I liked it because it was challenging. But it was, it's written by Gerard Jones, drawn by Eduardo Barreto. Uh, it's, it's a 1950s set paranoid um, invasion of the body snatchers meets quiz show. It's just a, it's a glorious story. I'm a huge fan of it. I think it's probably the single best Marshman Hunter story ever told. You can probably seek out those individual three issues for a lot cheaper now than they were back in 1992. So I definitely recommend that. Highest recommendation on that. Also, you know, Justice League of Midsummer's Nightmare is what made me a Marshman Manhunter fan. Uh, it really made me feel for that character. And I, 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 most of the sequences were drawn by Jeff Johnson, who I thought was one of the best Marshman Manhunter artists. So I love that miniseries, and I would definitely recommend that. I think JLA Year One is another great exploration of the character and his relationship to the Justice League. And I, one other one, too, that's not collected yet, and I, I'm really sorry that should have happened, um, Hell on Earth, which was uh, took place over Justice League of America number 37 through 40. It's the story where Despero comes back to Earth with a mat on, mm-hmm. and it's another instance where this is a, a horror story while still having comedic elements and gloriously drawn by Adam Hughes. It's just a great-looking story. It, it Basically, it's it, Despero's John Jones's nemesis, and you get to see – the, what Marshman Hunter could be if he were the kind of Pearson that somebody like David Goyer would want him to be, <laughs> contrasted in Despero. So it's it's a great story, and I highly recommend finding those few issues. They're they're relatively expensive, and I don't understand why they're not collected. I, Justice League International's collections stopped somewhere in the late twenties, I think, and it's just a damn shame because that Adam Hughes stuff needs to be printed on higher quality stock and presented to a new audience. That's a story that you know it's one of the great Justice League stories, and it's not collected anywhere well frank thank you once again for being on the secret origins podcast where can our listeners find you online if they want to hear more from you about this character or about other comic characters well i did a daily blog the idol head of diabolu uh for about six years so there's a lot of content on that blog that's still valid that's still searchable i need to do some updates as far as the navigation goes uh, i'm also trying to get out the idol head of diabolu podcast as often as i can i've got a lot of other projects that take up my time and there's just such an enormity of what I want to do in covering the Martian Manhunter that it's hard to focus in on individual elements. But uh, by the time this one comes out, I should have released the uh, Six Years of Martian Manhunter 957 episode, which will be about 34 minutes long. It's a fun one. And most of the Idlehead stuff is pretty fun. So I'd go ahead and check that one out if you would. And seriously, I just need to pimp your two-part 60th anniversary special on the Idlehead podcast. I cannot imagine how long and arduous a task that was but the final product was magnificent that was such a fun thing to listen to it was like just talking about like an oral history audio documentary 
like take a bow, man. Doff your cap for that one because that was awesome. Everybody should listen to those two episodes. Trying to find audio uh, related to such an obscure character was a crushing <laughs> endeavor. Uh, it was extremely time-consuming. But what's funny is I, I almost wish I had waited a little bit longer because it seems like with the proliferation of podcasts, so many people are getting interviewed that just in the span between parts one and parts two, all these new interviews popped up related to the character and, and circumstances around the character. Uh, but at the same time, I think I ended it at just the right time because when I end, did that second special, the Marshman Hunter was just becoming a, a character on Supergirl and getting you know millions of viewers that had never seen that character before. The Marshman Hunter series was still an ongoing story that was selling well enough that it would have continued on for probably into a second year and perhaps beyond that. So it ended on a more hopeful note, whereas now it's like, oh, yeah, they're going to cancel it by editorial fiat. And, you know, a lot of the Supergirl stuff that's come out this year hasn't been as strong as the stuff from 2015. So it's like it's probably best that I, I wrap it up on a more positive note. Although I will say that the, the Manhunter is probably the highlight of the Supergirl show when his sequences are just fantastic. I love how the character's rendered. And uh, they've just done a wonderful job of, of depicting that character on the show. Awesome. Well, I trust and anticipate that you will be doing the exact same thing for Wonder Woman and the Atom in the near future. So. Yeah, that's actually one of the problems is that I know I've got to start dealing with Wonder Woman's 75th anniversary soon. I really want to do some podcasting on her. She's an easier character to talk about than the Martian Manhunter because mm-hmm. she's just more clear. There's, there's, it, it, there isn't just such a huge amount of history that I want to try to you know, uh, vid blip into people's brains. I could take her a comic at a time, an issue at a time. Um, and I know that the, the Wonder Woman blog, uh, podcast is going to be revving up quite a bit this year. So I, I'm trying to get as much Manhunter stuff done as I can. And it's just I, I think that I'll be doing Manhunter longer than anything else I'll, I'll ever do in this life. But I won't necessarily be as prolific as I will be with some of these other podcasts. All right, well, one more time, thank you very much for being on the show. It was great to have you. Always great to be here. Thanks. My name is Michael Bailey, and I am still kind of a bad geek. Not a fan of anime. Never seen any of the Harry Potter films, much less read the books. I ventured a little further into the worlds of Star Wars and Star Trek, and I've even managed to watch a little Doctor Who. I've also managed to not watch a single episode of The Walking Dead. So what do I like? Comic books. I have been reading and collecting comic books since 1987, and I've been a fan of superheroes for as long as I can remember. Some would consider this a hobby, but I prefer to look at it as what it truly is. A crippling addiction that I may never recover from. Back in 2007, I started a podcast called Views from the Long Box to deal with this borderline personality disorder. Every week or so, I pick a particular comic or issue or character or whatever to talk about them, and then, well, I I talk about them. It's kind of what a podcast is. Sometimes I'm alone. Sometimes I'm joined by my semi-regular co-hosts, the Irredeemable Shag or Thomas DJ, and the permanent semi-regular co-host, Andrew Leyland, and sometimes another friend from the podcasting and comic book world stops by to chat. The show is located at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com where you can find old episodes and show notes and links to my other internet endeavors. You can also find the show on Facebook and I'm on Twitter under the handle at Bailey's Podcasts. Views from the Long Box. A podcast about comic books or a desperate cry for help. You decide. Every Tuesday or so at www dot views from the long box 
www.thepodcastnetwork.com. back for one more story, and this time we're talking about the man with the plan, Maxwell Lord. My guest writes reviews for Comicosity, and he runs the blog Tales of My Greatest Strange Adventures. Please welcome back to Secret Origins, Mr. Doug Zavisha. How are you, Doug? Doing great, Ryan. How are you doing, sir? I am doing well, and it's great to have you back. It's been a while since we talked. I think the last time you were on the show was when we were covering the Doom Patrol on the first annual. That sounds about right to me, and it's, I'm glad to be back. Thank you. No, no, I love talking to you about these. So, why Max Lord? <laughs> why not? Don't we all aspire to be Max Lord before he gets all, you know, homicidal and kills one of his very best friends and all that? Oh, so that's the cutoff point. You, you want to be Max Lord before, before that point. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Don't we all? <laughs> uh, sure, yeah. <laughs> Let's draw the line there, yeah. Well, that, uh, I think most of the other folks were already taken, so I said, okay, I'll take Max. <laughs> Do you like the character? Are you a fan of Max? Uh, early on, when I was reading Justice League and Justice League International, as, as it was coming out, uh, Max Lord was about the worst thing that had ever happened to comics as far as I was concerned. <laughs> but then the long game started to come into picture, and it started to make sense. And I'm talking the long game before Infinite Crisis. Right. I'm talking the JLI long game. And, and he started growing me. Um He's not my favorite character by any means, but reading these adventures again, he certainly is a completely different character, and he's nowhere near as grating as he was you know, back when I was, gosh, I don't even remember when this came out. I'm going to guess 14 to 15, that age. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know how I feel about him, and I, th- I think you have the right approach. I think we can consider from Countdown to Infinite Crisis and beyond, he's almost a separate character. So looking at the Justice League International era, Maxwell Lord, I don't know how I feel about him. And I'm also not sure if Giffen and Demetrius knew how they felt about him or if they knew if they wanted me to feel a certain way about him. I I mean, we can talk a little bit more about this after we go over the story, but I get some of the 80s shark character vibe from him, but is he supposed to be sympathetic? You know, he's not as crass... Given how much their book relied on humorous elements, it would have been so easy to make him a two-dimensional stereotype character. And they don't do that. They give him a little bit more nuance and, and a little bit more sympathy. And I don't know if that's what the character needed. Again, we can talk more about that later. Um, well, that, that seems to be their take on just about any characters. They, they put a little bit more humanity into everybody. That's true. That's true. But getting into his publication history, and this shouldn't take a whole lot of time, Maxwell Lord first appeared in Justice League issue 1 in 1987. That means there were no pre-crisis on Infinite Earth stories about Maxwell Lord. 
That also means that the character had been around for less than two years at the time that this issue of Secret Origins came out. He stuck with the Justice League International and Justice League Europe and Justice League America throughout the late 1980s and early 1990s. After that, Max drifted away while the Justice League got back to its world's greatest heroes roots. In 2005, during the Countdown to Infinite Crisis one-shot, Blue Beetle discovered that Maxwell Lord was secretly co-opting a spy satellite and robot army to monitor and eventually eliminate all of the superheroes. Yes, Max Lord was revealed to be a bad guy, as punctuated by his act of shooting Blue Beetle in the head, and then he was revealed to be a metahuman himself with telepathic abilities. He used these powers to psionically possess Superman and ordered the Man of Steel to kill Batman, Sounds vaguely familiar right now. But Wonder Woman intervened by killing Max. During the climax of The Blackest Night, Max Lord was resurrected. He used his telepathic powers to convince the world that he didn't exist, but several members of the old Justice League International still remembered him and hunted him down during the maxi-series Justice League Generation Lost. I think he appeared in the New 52 series Grayson and Justice League 3000, but I'm not sure. I haven't read those. Uh, was there anything else really significant that I've left out? I, d- I don't recall him in uh, Justice League 3000, but that's not to say he wasn't. You know, I, I've read a lot of books mostly for review, so the ones that I read for not review tend to get a little muddy. But as far as things that you may have left out, there were the two uh, miniseries, formerly known as Justice League, and I can't believe it's not Justice League. I don't know. Okay, yeah, good. I forgot about those. And I think the latter ran kind of parallel to Infinite Crisis. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of, uh, you, you get both Maxwell Lords at the same time. So the argument could be made again, you know, one is better than the other, different, or they're even two different characters. Yeah. Uh, but to your point of the, the plot sounding similar with regards to Max trying to mind control Superman to kill Batman, well, yeah, that does sound really familiar. <laughs> it might have been even better on a screen. <laughs> I would have picked that motivation or that that reasoning as opposed to no motivation, but I, I've already reviewed the movie. I don't want to get into that right now. Indeed. The way I discovered the character, again, I wasn't reading JLI at the time, so I didn't meet him until he popped a cap in Ted Kord's brain and then and then was summarily executed by Wonder Woman a few issues later. So for me, like, I mean, I, I entered the way I met him was as an evil son of a bitch. And then I had to sort of reset my brain and how I evaluated him later. Are you ready to tell our listeners the secret origin of Maxwell Lord? Yes, indeed, sir. All right. Climbing back out the secret origin of Max Lord. Sorry, Maxwell Lord. This is written by Keith Giffen and his frequent writing partner, Robert Lauren Fleming. Uh, it's drawn by Eduardo Barreto. Todd Klein is the letterer, Gene D'Angelo is the colorist, and Mark Waite is the editor. And as far as the, the art itself goes, it's uh, standard. Uh, Giffen is responsible for breakdowns as well, as he was through a lot of the Justice League titles at the time of Justice League, Justice League International. He would certainly have more influence visible than others, uh, but the nine grid page seems to be a hallmark of Giffen's time during JLI. And he uses that to, to great effect here. As far as the, the art itself, just uh, generally speaking, I'll, I'll come back to that at the end, but Barreto's a decent fit for this story. So the story opens up with Max Lord and Oberon sitting in Max's office, and Oberon basically asks Max to tell him a story. 
And before uh, Oberon really can put words to what it is that he'd like Max to tell him, Max presumes that Oberon wants to know how it is that Max got to be where he is. Uh, Max goes on to explain that he became an executive, a low-level executive, and emphasizes low-level. So he sets his sights in the past, and these are all wonderful rounded corner flashback panels, uh, sets his sights in the past to travel up the ladder, to become a CEO, to become a champion of Enterprise. And he befriends the CEO of the company he's working at and finds out that, well, that guy wants to go spelunking. So Max Lord, being a corporate chameleon, decides that, well, he's the world champion of spelunking, and why don't we go? Plots out a sinister accident for his boss, and before he has a chance to execute his plan, his boss makes an accident of his own. Falls to his doom, uh, and as Max goes down to help him out, he comes in touch with a computer, and the text in this issue is minimal. And Max describes it as, that's when I spotted the computer. Big computer. Bad computer. And it got me. And then we cut back to Oberon and and Max, because as you do with flashbacks, you don't want to pour it all into the past. So you've got to touch base on the present at time. So Oberon is asking, do you mean it controlled you? And Max simply says that the computer controlled him like the snake controlled Adam and Eve. It offered him an apple, no pun intended, as Max says, and he accepted. So Max uses the computer, uses the knowledge from the computer to learn how to, uh, or not to learn, but to identify soft spots in the market and to take his industry to a higher level, to the point where, as Max says on the bottom of the fourth page of this story, even Ronald Reagan remembered my name. We're not dating this at all. I don't think Ronald Reagan remembered anybody's name. Uh, Max goes on to explain how he continued to have a a relationship with this computer as far as them mutually benefiting one another. Uh, And then it was the computer's idea to establish the Justice League. Um, So you get flashback panels of him offering the device to Kimio Yoshi, Dr. Light 2, some conversation with Booster Gold. And eventually, again, we come back to present day. And I'm just noticing this now on page six, the present day panels still have rounded corners. Whoops. Yeah. So uh, Oberon's basically catching on to the fact that, well, Max is setting everything up. And from the terrorists in issue one to the uh, Royal Flush Gang to basically nudging Booster Gold into the Justice League. But as it turns out, Max did set things up. But at that point, the computer started to take a little more control as far as what it was going to do and how the plans were going to be executed. This leads to the eventual formation of Justice League International. Shortly following that, there's an assassination attempt on Max's life by his assistant, Ms. Wootenhofer. And the computer saves Max and takes out uh, some aggression, as it were, on Wootenhofer. This leads to a parallel to JLI number 12, at which point we learn that Max exerted himself above the computer or beyond the computer's influence and take us back to present day where Max and Oberon round out their conversation and then... Max realizes that it was maybe a little bit the computer's influence, maybe a little bit his own, but the Justice League still values him for who he is. The story ends on the eighth page with Max and Oberon deciding that they're going to take John to dinner, and Oberon remember, reminds Max not to order the flambe. Ha ha, ha ha ha. <laughs> and that's it. Yeah, yeah, I like the ending. I like the fact that they just kind of name drop Martian Manhunter at the end because he is a consistent throughout this issue. Um, he gets the middle chapter of this book, 
but he's also a part of the end of Booster Gold's story. So it's kind of nice that he is the, the running through line Martian Manhunter is in all of these stories a little bit. All right, what did you think of the origin? Um, this origin is a condensed version of what we get in JLI number 12, which is an, a, a much more in-depth version of the, the story. Um, also in JLI 12, we learn, and, and through the filter of this origin, which this origin story came out less than a year after JLI 12, if I'm getting everything right from... Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics. Right. This one would have come out right after JLI 22, I think. So, yeah, figure one. Right. Yeah, less than a year. It's like October of 88, and Mm -hmm. JLI 12 came out like December of 87. Mm -hmm. But you put the two together, and it gives JLI 12 some more depth and some more definition. Mm -hmm. The origin itself, I'm not mistaken, it, it avoids, well, it does mention Metron. Metron? Metron? Help me out with this one, sir. Metron. It mentions him, but it avoids the overall conflict and everything that spun out of that. Right. That would have taken a lot more time than they had. Exactly. At that point, they may as well have just dropped in a panel that said, mm-hmm. just read JLI-12. They also, they don't even mention that Mrs. Wootenhofer was a manhunter when she tried to kill him, which when I reread this, I was like, wait a minute, why the hell did she try to kill him? Like, I completely blocked out, and then I had to like yeah. go back and look because it was in... Uh, Justice League International issue ten, and I was and I saw oh it was a Millennium tie, and I was like oh yeah she was a main hunter in disguise. There you go. Yep. Yeah, and the the art from Barreto, I mean he's he's kind of a perfect match for a corporate memoir. Mm-hmm. Again, the nine panel grid also kind of matches nicely for this type of story. Right. You know, it's very measured. It's very controlled. It's it's like Max himself. Mm-hmm. You know, there aren't any fancy camera angles. Barreto does mix th- some things up as far as the camera angles go with specific regard to the retelling. I mean, if you look at the spelunking page, you've got a, a long, a vertical panel mm-hmm. next to four other panels. And if you match that up with the equivalent page in issue 12, or six other panels, if you match that up to the page in issue 12, I mean, it's almost beat for beat, but it's just different camera angle. Yeah, exactly. So this is why I say that I'm not sure how I'm supposed to feel about Max, or I'm not sure if Giffen and Demetrius how they wanted me to feel about Max. Because the fact is, Max admits that he was going to commit premeditated murder. He was leading his boss to this cave where he was going to kill him and take over his job. Right. But he doesn't kill him because just fate or chance or something else causes his guy to lose it. So... Max is innocent of the crime of murder, but is he absolved from the fact that he was going to kill? Like, this is, like, I can't feel any sympathy for this guy. And this was, this honestly, it was a problem for me when I watched Batman Begins. The fact that Bruce Wayne was going to murder Joe Chill until some other gangster had him killed, like, right in front of him. I was like, Bruce was going to cross that line. He was going to do that. You're going to have to work to get me back on this guy's side. And I feel like that movie did. I don't feel like Max was ever really redeemed enough to get over the fact that he had murder in his heart from a very early point in his career. I don't know, after the computer corrupts him and brainwashes him, he does eventually resist that. Does he have, like, a born-again experience? Are we uh, willing to forgive him for this? I mean, it sounds like Oberon and John Jones and the Justice League do, but what do you think? Um, To your point, he doesn't really have one at this point, but... The intent of murder happened so far, well, relatively, so far before his formation of the Justice League. And I think maybe the Justice League is his repentance. Maybe that's what balances the scales. 
and the fact that he continues to champion the Justice League as a corporate or as a, a, a an executive face, maybe that's his redemption. I don't know. I, it, I the, the part I, that gets me is at the end, Oberon just goes, yeah, okay, let's go have dinner. <laughs> exactly. I might buy that creating the Justice League was his act of redemption if it was his idea. But I don't. It's it's not. It, it's the computer's idea. The computer wants him to do it, and the whole time he's. It still feels like he's doing this to assert more power for himself. Right, but at this point he continues it. Yeah, that's true. Yes. Yeah, that's true. After and, he loses, he and does. looking at where this falls, you know, relative to JLI number twelve, mm-hmm. you know, which is essentially what this is a, a stand-in or a footnote mm-hmm. for. Beyond that. You know, they start truly going international with the embassies, with the right. second edition of a second team. And actually, this issue of Secret Origins would have come out just before Justice League Europe splintered off. Yeah. So they would have been expanding more. So, no, I, I get that. And I get once he resists the computer, once he fights back, he does have this second uh, a rebirth in a, in a sense. And actually, I, we see that in, I think it's in Justice League 25. Because I think there's two stories in that, and one of them is Max goes back to that cave and like falls down again and has to be rescued by Blue Beetle. Uh, ironic. I'm trying to remember how that plays out, but I think he confronts the computer again and and keeps and continues to resist it. Because that was also I think when they were when they were first revealing his his powers and everything. Sounds about right, but yeah. I don't have a, a strong recollection yeah. of that. So yeah, I, and I agree. The art, I like the art in the story. There's nothing really splashy or flashy that much. Although some of the, I mean, when you do get the action panels, they're smaller panels. It's just the sort of the setback of Giffen's nine panel layout. But yeah, he he has a good command of like the 80s corporate look and style. Yeah, and I don't know that Barreto would have worked for very many other members of the Justice League. Mm-mm. This makes me want to watch um, American Psycho again. <laughs> <laughs> Any other thoughts about the story? No, not really. I mean, this one's short and sweet and kind yeah. of the, the capstone for the whole Justice League International as far as Secret Origins goes. Yeah, just a simple eight-pager to close it out. It, I, I really liked the way they did this, even though it's been hell you know, putting these episodes together. But I, I like these three issues of Secret Origins coming together. Um, back in episode 31, we got... Roy Thomas's, for the most part, his farewell to the book with the origin of the Justice Society of America. Then we get, in 32, we get the revised new post-crisis origin of the Justice League. And then, as Justice League International is just hitting the peak of its popularity, about to spin off into two different books, we get three issues of Secret Origins dedicated to nine of these characters. I think it was a really cool idea, a real cool tie-in, everything that they did to kind of promote this. These were these were fun issues to go back over. They almost at this point could have made this a separate parallel miniseries, mm-hmm. you know, and added a couple more origins or characters, and taking care of some of the oversights that they didn't ever really get around to. What other Maxwell Lord stories should we be looking at? If somebody, if somebody wanted to know more about this character and wanted to read more about him, where would they be looking? Oh, they should go straight to JLI or Justice League, then JLI. Uh, the first four issues of Justice League by Giffen, DiMatteis, and uh, McGuire are just amazing world-building stuff that digs into uh, some of the, the funner aspects of superheroing while still maintaining a little bit of somberness. But then I think issue five is where things kind of jump the rails a little bit, maybe a little bit in four, and the humor starts to really start 
pouring into the title. Mm-hmm. Uh, starts coming through the artwork. Uh, uh, McGuire starts loosening up a bit more. Uh, really starts dropping expressions. Starts embellishing Giffen's breakdowns a little bit more. Or maybe Giffen gets a little more comfortable in the breakdowns. So I'd say the first year or even two years of JLI are probably great spots for Maxwell Lord. Uh, the two miniseries that I mentioned earlier, the formerly known as, and I can't believe it's not Justice League. That's a, a weird group of characters there. You've got Beetle and Booster, but then you've also got Elongated Man mix, uh, as a, a backbone. Uh, Fire and Ice are there and Mary Marvel. Um, it's not any particular Justice League lineup, but it makes for a great, fun read. And the creators are just having a blast, and it shows through on the pages. And specifically, and, if somebody was collecting the trades, I think it's the second trade paperback of Justice League International. Correct. really deals with Max's story. And then, of course, if you do want more of the darker take and what, what happens to the character, Countdown to Infinite Crisis, the one-shot reveals that he's a bad guy who's been playing the long game to to betray the heroes all along. And then the OMAC project after that... I noticed I was avoiding that. I know that you were. <laughs> you get to you get to be you get to have your hands clean of that. But I will, of course, remind people that this character was taken down a path that I don't think a lot of people liked. But there you have it. So. And then the the Justice League series that was parallel to Brightest Day, um, Generation Lost. Yeah, yeah, that as well. I mean, if you're looking for the Dark Max Lord. You know, if you want to take Ryan's journey and read all the Dark Max Lord first and, first and then come back and read the good stuff, go for it. <laughs> I, just, I have so much hate in my heart that can only be sated by the dark stories. So. All right, Doug, thank you very much for being part of this episode of Secret Origins. Thank you for coming back one more time. Thank where, you, sir. Where can our listeners find you if they want to hear more from you online? Uh, unfortunately you won't hear more from me, but you can read more from me at Comicosity where I am doing reviews and interviews and all sorts of stuff. And I'm also still curating two very sad, very neglected blogs, uh, tales of my greatest strange adventure And then my greatest adventure 80.blogspot.com still is kind of my go-to whenever I get a, a fun little nugget of news from the doom patrol. All right, Doug, thank you very much for being on the show again. It was great to talk to you. Thank you, Ryan. One quick teaser before diving into listener feedback. There will be a special contest announcement at the end of this episode. Listen for your chance to win some free comics, including a special Secret Origins issue. Details to follow after your feedback from episode 34, which, as you'll recall, featured the origins of Captain Adam, Rocket Red, and Nort. So, let's get to it. Last episode received Twitter favorites and retweets from Andrew in Belfast, Ange, Bill Bear, Brian Mulvey, Buck at Highball2814, Captain Marvel, Charlton Hero, Comic Book Insurance, Comic Reflections, Dan at Dinosaur Number One, David Gutierrez, Diablo Frank, Dr. G, Nerdologist, Ed Moore at Indie Comics Fan, Ed Moore at Marvel Bronze Age, Ed Moore at Teal Productions, Ed Moore Jr. You know, last week I'm pretty sure I commented that there were a lot of Ed Moores. This time there's actually another one. I think they're multiplying rapidly.
Inigo Montoya, FKA Jason, Gabriel M. Cox, Greg Arugio, Gwen Campbell, The Hammer Strikes, Ian Boucher, Jim Bow, Keith G. Baker, Richard Field, Rift, Silver and Gold, Siskoid, Stephen Bird, Two True Freaks, and Willie Yarbrough. New Facebook likes and shares came from Abadaba, Al Sedano, Alex Bowman, Chingchai Namipol, Christopher Luke, Christopher Ouellette, Clinton Robison, Coffee and Comics Blog, David Ace Gutierrez, Dale Dale, Doug Miller, Gotham Shioran, G.I. Joe, a real American headcast, Gord Tolton, Greg Arujo, The Headcast Network, Herman Liu, James Murray, Jimmy McGlinchey, Keith G. Baker, Marco Antonio Garcia Alguin, Matt Ev, Max Romero, Michael Wagner, Neil Whitney, Nicholas Prom, Paul Spataro, Robert Ward, Rod Pruitt, Ruth Sutherland, Sean Emmons, Sean Brock, Sean Myers, Siskoid, Terry Tildesley, Tim Wallace, Tony Hughes, and Trevor Owen Williams. Moving on to the website comments, which can be found at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Once again, as always, I am only cherry-picking the comments. Some of you leave very long, very detailed responses, which is so annoying. No, I'm kidding. It's awesome. And lately, there has been a lot of back-and-forth discussion in the comments for the last couple episodes, and I love to see that kind of group interaction. But I'm not going to read all of it out loud on this segment, so... Also, big shout-out to everyone who used the rocket red phrase, Hokey Smokes, in your comments on the website or Facebook and Twitter. You guys are all awesome. Anyway, the first comment came from Rob Kelly from the Fire and Water podcast and Pod Dylan, who explained why he's always had kind of an axe to grind with Captain Adam. Rob says, Back when I was at the Cubert School, one of our assignments was to draw a page from a Captain Adam script, something that I think had been left behind when the Charlton Weekly book got scrapped. It had trucks, cars, and other hard stuff to draw, which is why to this day I have always disliked the character. Basically, I have never liked any of these characters, so even though I bought Secret Origins regularly at the time, I may have skipped this issue, finding another way to spend my $1.50. So the fact that I could get through this episode at all is a testament to Ryan and his guests. Well done, sirs. Thank you, Rob. Chris Franklin from the Supermates podcast added a minor blip to Captain Adam's publishing history. Chris says that Captain Adam was very briefly published by a fledgling Americomics after Charlton folded, but before DC picked him and the other action heroes up. A few of the other listeners, like Jeff Nettleton and Kyle Benning, also mentioned the Americomics appearance, too. Uh, Chris goes on, I have to disagree with Frank on the state of the series and the podcast at this point. Yes, the flavor of the series has changed, but honestly, Thomas was running out of gas, or running out of decent headlining characters to feature. Had he not so slavishly followed publishing dates, we may have gotten Wildcat, Hawkgirl, and other important characters, instead of the really obscure ones before the Golden Age portion of the series fizzled out. DC of the time was, and still primarily is, based on the foundation of their Silver Age comics, so focusing on those characters and themes made more sense for the audience of the time. I agree with all of that. Um, First, I really wish we had gotten the unpublished origins of Wildcat, Hawkgirl, and the Ray, but I think it was time for a change of direction, and I like where we're going. The back half of the series has a bunch of Batman villains that I like, a bunch of Legionnaires that I'm just starting to love, and a lot of those Silver Age concepts that Frank doesn't care for, but I do. For instance, I was talking to Siskoid a couple of nights ago, and I mentioned that one of my guilty pleasures in comics is super-intelligent apes. 
I love Gorilla Grodd. I love Titano, a giant gorilla who shoots kryptonite radiation out of his eyes. How have we not seen that in a movie yet? I would take that as a final boss level a thousand times over Doomsday. So yeah, bring on the All Super Apes issue of Secret Origins. Uh, Jeff Nettleton's, and this is why I love Jeff, he brings the working military knowledge to the show. Regarding Captain Adam being convicted of treason, Jeff Nettleton says, Comics writers and civilians tend to get treason wrong. The charges against Adam wouldn't have been treason, it would have been murder and conspiracy. The Uniform Code of Military Justice isn't quite that draconian. As it is, there were rulings against treason as a charge in several cases relating to actions in Vietnam, based on the fact that there was no formal declaration of war, which is a key component of treason. Of course, that was all before 9-11. And then Jeff goes on, For my money, the only really layered Russian character, at DC at least, was the protagonist of the Little Scene Skull and Bones miniseries from Ed Hannigan. The hero is a special operative of the KGB, or GRU, who was disillusioned by the fighting in Afghanistan, which was a major factor in the calls for change in the Soviet Union prior to the coup attempt by the Politburo, and returns to destroy the system, but events force him to defend Mother Russia. It's worth seeking out. The character and actor that Dr. G is trying to remember is Max Brzezlowski, played by Elia Baskin. Yeah, I looked him up after our conversation. That guy is in, like, everything, but I never remember his name, so thank you. Jimmy McGlinchey said, Another good episode, Ryan. Some great guests and a touching tribute to Sean Engel. Thank you on behalf of me and my guests. Uh, On the subject of Rocket Red, Jimmy says, I think Kilowog needed to have done a good bit more work on the Rocket Red armor, because apart from Dimitri, the Brigade tended to be taken apart a lot. The extremists decimated them, and then Sonar took over the entire Brigade in Justice League Europe issues 45 through 50. It got worse after the fall of Communist Russia, with Rocket Reds being used by the Russian Mafia in chase, while the armor was sold to Vandal Savage in the DC 1 Million series. That led to Montevideo being blown up. The introduction of Gavril in Justice League Generation Lost at least brought back Dimitri's hip lingo once again. Roll on the next episode. And Shag, all of this Justice League International love makes me think you need to increase the output of the Bwahaha podcast. Just saying. Well, Jimmy, episode 2 did just come out yesterday, but I agree with you. Shag really ought to be putting that podcast out every day. <laughs> Lazy bum. Diablo Frank talked about discovering Captain Adam and his own history with the character. Frank then says, As for the actual Secret Origins story, I agree with everyone that it belabored its point at the expense of the real backstory. Truth to tell, I skipped most of the phony anecdotes, recognizing the source material I was familiar with and not needing a heavy-handed reworking. As we've seen here previously, creators don't seem to want to tell the same story twice in a 5-10 to year span, so we end up with issues like this where telling the secret origin is seen as a problem to overcome or an issue to subvert while they focus on some novel aside or character development. The secret origin of Martin Stein becoming a professor and his failed first marriage comes to mind, although that at least was a legitimate narrative, not three-quarters length of pure fabrication within the context of the story. Considering the drubbing Alan Weiss got on this podcast, I have to point out that his art was the highlight of the story. I enjoyed seeing Captain Adam drawn in that Neil Adamsy 70s style after he missed most of the decade of publishing. Weiss was one of those slow, detailed artists in the Bronze Age that couldn't draw a monthly book, but was a real bright spot when he'd fill in for some aging journeyman grinding out a given Marvel title. Jim Shooter also tapped him to help launch Defiant Comics. 
Yeah, when I was editing the episode, I thought that Jason and I sounded a little more hard on Alan Weiss's art than we intended, or at least a little more ambivalent. I still don't love the art, but I don't mean to criticize it either. It's good, it's solid, and there are some examples that I posted where the art even excels beyond that. But anyway, uh, as to Frank's other point, yeah, we have seen some examples where the story bends over backwards to not simply rehash the origin story if it was a recent creation, even though those origins are the most straightforward and simplified story, which is what you'd expect and want from this series. So... Frank continues, After all this weighing of pros and cons, I have to finish by saying the original Ditko and Gill story is the most perfect and concise version of Captain Adam's origin, and among the finest in the history of the medium. While the politics and science are simplistic to the point of being retrograde, the storytelling was ahead of its time. Ditko was an absolute master of tension, and you feel the flop sweat during the pre-launch through detonation sequences, as Alan suffers and faces his impending doom. Imagine the impact of Gil knowing when to shut up and allowing four dreadfully silent panels to emphasize the tragedies unfolding, at a time when even one such panel would generate angry letters from ripped-off fans who assumed a mistake had been made. It was a bravura, game-changing tale. Paul Hicks from the Waiting for Doom podcast said, DC in the 90s would have been much, much better if they'd just let Captain Adam become monarch at the end of Armageddon 2001. Biggest mistake they made that decade. The effect of that stupid move rippled through the DC universe for nearly 20 years, with writers like Jeff Johns repeatedly trying to repair the damage by gluing tiny pieces of continuity into a rough approximation of the shape it should have been. And then a few minutes later, Paul came back and added, Oh dear God, I'm literally upset about something that happened in a comic 25 years ago. I have become all that I hate. To which Clinton Robison from the Coffee and Comics blog responded, Speaking as somebody going back and re-examining that crossover 25 years later, you are so freaking right. And I'll agree, trying to patch it all up has been a bigger mess than fixing Hawkman's post-crisis continuity. Clinton then left his own comments talking about Captain Adam. Did we forget that his gold costume showed back up when he jumped to the Wildstorm universe pre-Infinite Crisis? Did we forget that he went there at all? Yeah, we probably did. I didn't actually read those issues, but if we have collectively forgotten them, then there is probably a reason. The Armageddon 2001 crossover issue for Justice League Europe has a really cute story about Rocket Red being transported to Camelot and becoming one of Arthur's greatest knights. Too bad Etrigan gets summoned to murder him. Yeah, that does kind of put a shadow on things. Dr. Ange from the Supergirl blog Waiting for Season 2 said, Before his solo title, Captain Adam starred in DC Comics Presents Issue 90, teaming him up with Firestorm, something which made sense for me then, both guys being atomic-slash-nuclear, so there is a non-crisis blue shirt story. Then Ange confirms that it was him who recommended the Pax Americana issue of Multiversity. Ange says, In fact, I said it was the best comic I had read in a long time. Nearly perfect. Just a fantastic, trippy story which was complemented wondrously by the art. It isn't this Captain Adam, but it is phenomenal. Cue Frank's rebuttal. I think he hated it. To which Frank returned and said, Yes, he hated it. Martin Gray from Too Dangerous for a Girl says, Another great show, and your tribute to Sean was appreciated. Nice job, lads. Yay, another Brit. Yeah, it's a regular British invasion here on the Secret Origins podcast between Martin and Andy Leyland, and even Paul Hicks, who I mistakenly called British many, many episodes ago. Sorry about that, but really, all white people sound the same to me. 
Martin goes on to say, The Captain Adam story was clever, and the main action in the series won me over, even though I am not a fan of E-Y-T-Y-K-W-W stories. People, I do not want to tell you how long it took me to decode that acronym. Rocket Red is a terrible name, backward-sounding. No wonder it kept being misgiven in the show as Red Rocket. Mind, given how often the Brigade members die, they may as well have been called Rocket Red Shirts. Um... Yeah, I didn't even notice at the time that we recorded. Uh, I only heard it when I was editing that Dr. G kept calling him Red Rocket throughout the segment. Okay, that'll do for the website comments, but just to keep you in suspense a little bit longer before I reveal the contest, the Secret Origins podcast has some new iTunes reviews. Now, some of these reviews are new to me, but they were actually written quite a while ago, and I'll explain why that is in a minute. Jeez, how many things am I going to set up in this? Siskoid left an iTunes review saying that the Secret Origins podcast won the Siskoid for Best New Podcast in 2015 and shows no signs of letting up. Ryan Daly is doing outrageously difficult work by getting guest stars for each and every origin, effectively building up the comic book podcasting community. Warning, you'll discover new voices that will force you to add podcasts to your listening queue. That has always been my goal, Siskoid, to absolutely bombard people with new blogs and podcasts, like confetti. Paul Hicks said, This show has me digging through my boxes and revisiting this classic DC series. Ryan and guests inform and entertain. You left out enrage, Paul. Bradleyman612 wrote, This is one of those comic book series I used to buy new. Some were good, some were bad. This podcast makes them all enjoyable. Having a different co-host for each origin is a brilliant idea. I have enjoyed every episode, even the ones that cover issues I dislike. And Earth2Chris wrote, Host Ryan Daly and a galaxy of guest hosts explore the legends of the DC Universe via the 1980s Secret Origins ongoing series. Every issue is examined expertly by Daly and a host that considered that character a personal favorite. The publishing history of the featured character is also discussed in full. If you ever were a fan of the DC Universe, this is the podcast for you. Well, thank you, Chris. Thank you, Siskoid, Paul, and Bradley. These iTunes reviews are great, and the more reviews the show gets, the easier new listeners can discover the show. And this, dear listeners, is where you can pitch in. The Fire & Water Podcast Network is asking for more iTunes reviews. A lot of people left reviews on the original Fire & Water Podcast, but now that the network is simultaneously collected and divided, a lot of the individual shows like Who's Who and Power Records don't have reviews on them. Rob and Shag, Chris and Cindy, Siskoid and the Canadians, and I would all love for that to change, and you can help us. And as a reward, I will send you a free care package that includes a number of random comics, including a signed copy of Secret Origins issue 41, starring the Flash's rogues gallery. A little over a year ago, when I decided to do this podcast, I only had a dozen issues from the series to start, so I bought the rest of the books in a couple of bulk purchases. And somehow, I guess I wasn't paying attention, I ended up with two copies of Secret Origins 41. I brought up the idea to the rest of the network guys of giving it away to a lucky listener who writes an iTunes review for every show we do. Well, Shag decided we could do even better than that. Using his Underworld contacts, Shag and I got one of my copies of issue 41 signed by the co-writers, Dan Mishkin and Gary Cohn. And you can have that issue, along with some other random books, for free just for writing iTunes reviews for the show. 
Here's what you do. Right now, there are 14 shows on the Fire & Water Podcast Network. We're asking you to write reviews for 12 of them. I mean, you don't have to write a review for Hero Points Podcast. Who are we kidding? And if Power of Fishnets isn't your jam, no offense taken. There are still 12 podcasts for you to review. And some of you might have already done that, like probably Gene Hendricks has. You have between now and the time I release episode 41, which will probably be in about two months, to get these reviews in. Once you write them up, shoot me a message on Facebook or Twitter letting me know which shows you reviewed, I'll verify that you've written the review, and I'll put you on a list of possible winners. Now, here's the real important part. If you're writing a review from outside the United States, let me know that too. Because, as Siskoid recently called to my attention, iTunes has separate pages for every country. So in order for me to find Siskoid's reviews, I have to switch the setting on my iTunes to read Canadian reviews. Or switch to Greece to read Paul Hicks's review. No, wait. Australia. He's from Australia. I remember that now. So anyway, yeah, let me know if you're writing from a different country. At the end of the two months, I will randomly draw the name of one listener who has reviewed 12 or more podcasts, and he or she will receive a Secret Origins 41 signed by Dan Mishkin and Gary Cohn. The winner will be revealed on episode 41, and just to avoid the appearance of impropriety, members of the Fire & Water Podcast Network are ineligible from participating in this contest. Also, Michael Bailey is disqualified because of his comments on the second episode of Justice League International. There, that's me throwing shade, Michael. Alright folks, that is all for this episode. One more time, a big thanks to Andy Capellish, Diablo Frank, and Doug Zavisha. Also, thanks to everyone who left a comment on the website, Facebook, and Twitter. Thank you for the shares and retweets and hollers on all of the social media. The next episode will finally cover the origin of Green Lantern Hal Jordan, as well as a Poison Ivy origin written by Neil Gaiman. Unfortunately, you're going to have to wait two weeks for that episode. Next weekend is going to be really busy for me, and I won't have the episode done in time. But hey, that gives you more time to write those iTunes reviews. Also, is there any rule against podcast repeats? Like, if I re-released episode 10, would anyone freak out? Well, I guess we'll find out next Monday. Secret Origins Podcast is a proud member of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page at facebook.com backslash secretoriginspodcast. You can find me on Twitter at ryandaily01, or you can send an email to rdailypodcast at gmail.com. The Secret Origins Podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed on this show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and believed covered under fair use. And since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening. Yes, I